Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Before we get to these episodes, I want to thank the following sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com. Guys, I wanted to remind you that the GoHunt mapping app is now available for Android and iPhone users. The GoHunt maps are included in your Insider membership. You can go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott and sign up for the GoHunt Insider you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card just for signing up. So not only will you have the unbelievable assets of the Go Hunt Insider with the draw odds, the statistics, the harvest data, all of the strategy articles, but now you're going to have desktop mapping. You're going to have the access to the mobile app. Uh, it's available on Android and iPhone. Guys, something new as well with Go Hunt. Anything in the Go Hunt Gear Shop, if you Use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on some amazing gear. Guys, I want to remind you, if you have any optical needs at all, whether it be binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, tripods, anything to do with glassing, give my friend Cody Nelson at Go Hunt a call. He's the optics manager. You can reach him at 702-847-8747. You can email him at optics at gohunt.com. You can also send him a text or call him on his cell phone, 602-399-3699. Gohunt.com also has the Summer of Elk giveaway. In this giveaway, there's several ways to enter. You get one entry if you subscribe to GoHunt emails, three entries if you spend $250 in the GoHunt gear shop, 10 entries if you join the GoHunt Insider. This Summer of Elk giveaway is $15,000 in gear and a 2022 New Mexico rifle elk tag. The Summer of Elk giveaway started on June 14th and ends August 31st at 11.59 p.m. Go to GoHunt.com. To sign up, I want to thank GoHunt.com for their continued sponsorship of this podcast. I also want to thank Kuyu, that's K U I U.com, Kuyu.com, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. Go to Kuyu.com to find out more. Also, Phonescope.com, use the J Scott promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. J Scott 21 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount at phonescope.com. That's the digiscoping adapter uh, that I use to take uh, videos and photos on my iPhone. Guys, I want to thank you for your support of this podcast and support of the sponsors. Let's get right to this episode. Guys, welcome to the J Scott Outdoors podcast. Today I've got my friend Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. Chris, how you doing? Doing all right, my friend. How are you? Good. It's been a while. Um, I wanted to get you on the podcast today and get a general catch up and and uh, touch on your spring and see how your summer planting and different things are going there in Kansas and go over yeah. some of your elk stuff coming up and then we've got a slew of questions here from uh instagram uh followers a uh, bunch of questions for you so i'm excited to have you on the podcast uh, what's been going on with you oh everyone everything all at once as usual <laughs> it seems like uh it, it does it's funny we uh since we moved to, to kansas northwest kansas here it seems like every summer there's some like major thing that you know major project going on last summer we did which was awesome but uh we've been trying to get um we were going to get a we well 
since last summer. We've been trying to get a couple buildings put up, steel buildings put up, and COVID and everything else going on. And you guys, anybody in construction right now knows what trying to get materials, and we just couldn't find anybody that wants to do work. So, literally, I mean, I, I hate to say that, you know, it, want to do work at a reasonable cost so literally we ended up getting a couple versatude buildings and we've been that's literally what has been my focus other than my habitat stuff that's just been trying to get these two buildings but we're finally we're like 99 percent done hopefully fingers crossed i'll get the lad they, they, the company keeps sending us the wrong um now there's just one little trim piece that is wrong and they keep sending us the wrong material. So we're waiting on that. So if it finally does come, I can climb up on the roof. I can kindly finally get this stinking bridge cap on and finally be done with it. But I'm sick and tired of walking up and down ladders. Oh, it's just been all summer up, up, down, up, down, scaffolding and ladders, scaffolding and ladders and scaffolding and ladders. So well, don't <laughs> fall off of one of those suckers. Oh, trust me, man. I, well, a falling off is one thing. Just, but just anybody that climbs up, just spends their day up and down ladders. You know what it does to your knees, and it's just golly, it's just yeah. No, I I want to be done with the project. Let's just put it that way. I just want to be done with the project, and it, it's about good timing too, because now I've got to start rolling around into some of getting some of our fall uh, habitat stuff ready to go, and some you know getting some tree stand stuff going, and because we're gonna do some different stuff with our deer hunts this fall so yeah it's it's, it's time to, to switch gears and not spend my life on a ladder that's for sure <laughs> how what's the general consensus of your turkey season after you've had a chance to kind of digest um how it went we had it, it ended up being a great hunt i mean we had we had a great season and a great hunt the, the first see the first hunt which was the first week of april was the worst one. We had four hunters, and we're only able to, to eke out one bird. Now, it, okay, it's a, it's a youth hunt, okay? And so you're sitting in a ground blind with kids, and, um, and it, you know, you've got some limitations that, that increase the challenge of the hunt. But that's not the issue. I mean, normally, you know, back in the day when I was hunting for myself, and, you know, there used to be an archery season that started uh, April 1st, and it went concurrently with the first week of, of youth, and that was my favorite week because you could have birds just absolutely stopping on decoys and just rushing, you know, multiple times come running into the decoys and just awesome, awesome experience and footage. And it, it usually are the first 10 days of season. Our hunts are a slam dunk hunt. This year, that just wasn't the case. It seemed like every, I thought everything had started early, but maybe everything started a little bit later because the birds in the first part of the season did not want to play. But as the, April continued on, and then quite honestly, right into May, uh, the hunts just kept getting better and better. And, and so after that, we filled all of our tags. Um, our bird numbers are still pathetic. I mean, the, the and we've got gobblers running around. The issue that a lot of people are seeing, and that I've been put some, I've got a stack of notes for my podcast and some of the discussions that I want to have. But out our way, the one thing that that a lot of people say is it's, it's not that you don't see goblins because there's some out there. The issue is we just don't have the hens. I mean, you just don't see the flocks of hens like we normally used to see. So we now might have five gobblers on a roost in the spring. And those five gobblers are literally locked down with four hens, not 40 hens, 
four. It's like, what the heck is going on? So, we yeah, our, our numbers are down. But for us, luckily, um, thankfully, uh, the birds that we have around us are stacked in on us because of the habitat stuff we're doing, and we make sure we still have the food, we still have the nesting, um, and the sanctuary for them. So management has its advantages, and luckily over these past several years, they've learned that they can come to us and, and have you know the resources they need. But even then, we just don't have the numbers that we normally should out here. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Over, I'm hoping to see uh, a good nest success. I've found a couple of different turkey nests that have successfully hatched. So that's a good sign. Now the question is, is how many poults and how many poults survive? We'll, we'll kind of start to see that this fall, I think. Yeah, for sure. What's your outlook on your deer stuff? Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, we've got some, you know, as usual, um, Again, most of the animals that are around us have learned that, you know, well, heck, we've got mature deer that are running around on our properties that have lived their entire life on our properties and don't know any better. But, no, antler growth right now looks phenomenal. We'll see what ends up happening, uh, what happens these, these next couple of few weeks to, you know, the end of the beginning of August. Um, as usual, our summer is getting pretty darn dry out here. And it seems like these past couple of years, as soon as you hit in June, the, the faucet turns off and we don't get a drop of rain. Now, while we're sitting here talking, I'm outside, it's getting dark and gray and there's a big thunderstorm. You know, there's a possibility of thunderstorms tonight, which fingers crossed we get. Um, but we had a really good spring. I mean, like a, like, a, like a shockingly good spring. We were not supposed to have good moisture this spring. It was supposed to be dry. Um, we had really, really good moisture this spring, which helped all the vegetation just green up beautifully. My corn, my my food plot corn is the best I've ever had. I mean, heck, it's almost head high right now for the stuff that I've planted. So it's it's looking great. Antler growth so far is looking great. We've got a couple of nice bucks on camera that one of them I think is one of the guys that that is has been here for years, and, and I'm hoping we can catch up with him. But a couple of them are, are buck, this typical fish. You just look at it and you're like, I have no idea who you are, you know? But I Which like you. nice. I don't yeah, know exactly, who you are, exactly but right. I love you. That's, that's exactly right. I don't know who you are, but I like you. <laughs> now, now, this question with us, you know, these, these river bottom habitats, these, this Western Plains whitetails, you know, they, um, it's, it's linear corridor. And so the deer that we have on us in the summer times are, are deer that go and spend the rut on our neighbors two miles away. And then there's other deer that might be on our neighbor two miles two miles away, and they show up on our property during the rut. So there's no guarantee that these guys are going to stick around. However, however, given all the food and given all the, the habitat stuff we've got on us, there's no reason why they would. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm opti- I'm. I'm as always, cautiously optimistic, but we're going to see how this summer plays out. You know, long-term forecasts for us show abnormally a, 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 a strong uh, a strong probability of above normal temperatures with a reasonable probability of below normal moisture, which is not what I want to hear. 
but we'll see. Can't do anything about it. So we just got to kind of roll with it and see how things unfold. So, yeah. What about your 2021 uh, elk uh, schedule prospects? What do you got going? Well, that is up in the air. We uh, so this year I did. I don't. I do not have a client for Arizona. I think I'm going to spend the season for myself. I mean, I last year. So normally, everybody knows I normally hunt Colorado for myself. Colorado a couple years ago changed their season structure. Uh, it used to start the last Saturday in August and then run for 30 days roughly. Well, now it starts September 2nd, which the problem for that for me in these past couple years when I'm guiding down in Arizona is. You know, Arizona archery usually is roughly that, you know, let's just say the middle two weeks of, of September. Well, if I'm going to get down there to the unit a week to 10 days early to get everything lined out, figure out what's going on. In the past, it used to leave me a week at the end, you know, the, the, the first week of Colorado hunting season. I could go hunt for myself, then go down to Arizona, get everything taken care of down in Arizona. And then sometimes if the client filled or whatever, whatever the case may be, I might be able to leave Arizona and still catch. If I haven't killed an elk already, I could still come through and hunt a few days uh, in Colorado after Arizona. Well, now with the season structure um, in Colorado, there's really no possibility when I'm guiding to hunt Colorado, except if I'm going to do it the, the last week of, September. So last year I did not hunt Colorado. I didn't hunt elk myself at all, period. And it's been a couple years uh, since I've really focused on hunting for myself. So I, a couple things were going on and I decided, you know what, I think this year I did not actively pursue some of the folks that wanted to go hunt. I was like, you know what, I'm going to kind of spend the season for myself. Now, the question is going to be where I go play. I don't, I don't know. I, my, you know, we've talked about before my old stomping grounds in Southern Colorado kind of got discovered and overrun by people. That's always there. I've got a couple other over the counter areas that I used to hunt or I know of that, you know, we've got friends that, that I've got friends that hunt there that I could go and, and stomp around in, um, debating on whether or not maybe go play around in Utah a little bit, see see what that's i don't know i'm just going to kind of play it by ear and uh, just kind of well quite honestly depends also what the moisture cycle looks like depending on what states are burning up it sounds like arizona's just popcorn fart dry down there and burning up but sound like you you were talking about thought six is getting some great rain so i might try to choose a spot in colorado that's got good moisture maybe chase some fun out yeah, for sure. That leads me to a question before we get into the Q&A with, the, with all the questions we have. Um, with COVID and, and the whole pandemic, um, I guess you want to call it whatever, the whole mess that we've been through. Fiasco. Uh, it, fiasco. It seems like the rivers and it seems like the woods, um, our forests have, people are complaining about um lots of people in the field question is um do you think you and me and others have any responsibility for causing some of that in the in the way of you know promoting hunting promoting fishing and and because i i've actually gotten a few messages basically saying you know thanks a lot 
Um, but I don't know that that's warranted for guys like us who are just promoting goodwill and trying to help people be better at what they do to blame someone in their hunting spot on us because of a pandemic and they don't, you know, they're not at their jobs. I don't know that that's completely fair, but, um, just your thoughts overall. I've seen it on the rivers, uh, this, this summer, especially I was in Idaho and, um, last summer, uh, it seemed like people were out, which is great. Um, what do you say to those guys that are complaining that, you know, their spots are covered up in people? What have we done? I guess what, what, <laughs> who's to blame? What have we done? And what are your thoughts? Well, in my opinion, elections have consequences. And I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about just the federal election, but I'm talking local and state and everywhere else in between, because I think it's directly, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's related to us because, I don't think we are out there. We're not out there drumming up demand for recreational experiences. But I, I don't. I don't believe that's what we are doing. Um, now, if we had this, you know, charismatic, sexy YouTube channel that you know was showing all these great and glorious things out there and how great, you know, I just sexifying everything up into where it's just like, oh my gosh, I've got to be a part of that. Well, maybe. All we're doing is educating. And what I've seen is just an absolute pent-up demand. The, the, the demand for people to want to have recreational experiences is high. The, the issue that we have now is there's very minimal outlets for that to happen. In 20, up until last year, how many people would go out on a Friday night or whatever and go to the movie? They, they would. How, how many would go out and hang out with their friends? You know, go to go do go to a concert or go to a festival or go do this or go do that or or more likely their kids were involved with some sports or involved with some, you know, the play at school or the, the kids were involved with such and such that as a family unit, the priority was, okay, we're going to go to this play. We're going to go to this sporting event. We're going to take our kids to this place. We're going to go on vacation here. And individuals at jobs would take their vacation for a purpose that up until now was largely not related to being outside hunting or fishing. Well, then you throw the pandemic stuff and the, the lockdown stuff. Well, there, you, you, it, you know, especially last year, you can't go to a movie theater. They're all shut down. There are no concerts. Those are shut down. School functions largely are shut down. I mean, heck, even graduation ceremonies were shut down. So now there's no... That person that has a one-week vacation or two-week vacation each year or that, that usually is spending the entire weekend with their family doing family-oriented activities with their kids or whatever, well, those none of those activities are going on anymore. So what are they going to do? Are they just going to sit home with their thumb up their butt and, and, and watch TV? Well, they did that for 12 months. At this point, People are like, all right, screw a bunch of this. I've got to go. Do, I've got to get out and do something, something fun, something that I enjoy. And guess what? We're allowed to do. We can go out. We can go out in nature, and we can walk. You know, 
run around the hills, splash around in the creek, and we can go hunt, we can go fish, we can we can do that type of sort of you know sort of thing. So especially when you're getting free quote unquote free money from the government, stimulus money to go play. Well, heck, why not? You know, yeah, I don't, I don't see it as our fault. I, I just I see it as a consequence of, of public policy redirecting innate desires that people have to recreate and just forcing it, pigeonhole, forcing it into these outlets that just happen to overlap with hunting and fishing. That's a good answer. How's that one for pulling something out of your butt? I like it. <laughs> I can always count on you for something like that. <laughs> it might stink, but hey, there it is. Let's dive into couple questions here i've got a slew of them uh three top things to focus on when archery hunting colorado bulls in september so he's archery hunting colorado bulls in september three top things to focus on you want me to dive in first yeah all right number one stay out of my hunting there <laughs> and mine so that's those are the top two <laughs> there's number one and number two number three have fun there you go there's your <laughs> good luck number four <laughs> good luck uh, top three um well to be honest i think my top three would be this focus on well i mean other than just hunting elk where elk are don't go i mean you, you got to hunt elk if there's elk there i mean look for sign and all that type of stuff but if there's elk if you have elk in your area in your unit in your region number one i'd be trying to identify the sanctuary areas um and i know there's another question coming up i think i saw some questions coming up or at least i know i've been giving a bunch of people have asked me about the fact that well just parallel to what you just are going off of what you just asked me. you know so many people finding more and more people in their hunting units and hunting areas what the heck do you do well um you got to find the sanctuary areas if the elk are there and you're finding tracks you're finding droppings their wallows are getting hit you're finding rubs you're hearing bugling you're hearing cow whatever if you're seeing elk and you're hearing elk okay then figure out where the sanctuary is that may or may not be in the same areas that it was in the past we, you know whether it's habitat changes with beetle kill whether it's because of the moisture cycle maybe this year it has way more moisture uh than it ever has and so you've got some thicker lusher areas and maybe the elk are going to move or maybe it's wherever you're hunting is just popcorn fart dry and now water is exceedingly limited to where you've got to figure out where those water sources are figure out where those sanctuary areas are that the elk can get away from pressure and still have the resources they need the food the water and then the sanctuary so so sanctuary areas would be the number one thing i'm i would be focusing on and for my hunt this fall that's exactly what i'm going to be focusing on where are those sanctuary areas um number two and I've kind of really started, I think I've really been focusing on this these past couple of years. Number two, and probably I could, I could probably lump three in with it too. Number two is whatever you do, once you do find the elk, don't change their behavior. Don't take a, don't 
choose a hunting style or calling strategy, at least to start, that is highly intrusive, highly disruptive, that it has the potential to adjust or, or impact the elk's behavior on the landscape. So I mean, if, if it takes you several days to find where the elk are, don't have your first encounter with them blow them off the mountain. Or your first encounter with them be such that they immediately identify your, something's not right, we need to be more cautious than we already are. So maybe we don't come out, get out of our bed to feed on a normal cycle. Maybe we'll just hang tight here for another hour and we won't come out till dark. Or maybe rather than going to that meadow, we're going to go over to this other, we're going to go up and over the ridge and we're going to go to this other place to feed. Or rather than using that wallow that we've been using for the past three weeks, no, mm, doesn't seem right. I'm going to pick up and we're going to go to a different area. Be smart about the strategies you choose, at least to start. Not to, you know, again, I, I, I am known for not being the guy that advocates for aggressive strategies to start. I, don't, I talk about them. I mean, they're, they're a legit strategy, but I don't do it to start. And so I think more and more as more people find there's just more and more people in and around their hunting areas, and it's getting more and more difficult to find unpressured elk they need to folks need to start focusing on okay when i find them how can i engage them and work them so i don't just set myself up for failure and then the next part of that number three would be if you do find them and if you have been smart about your strategies let your setup work let your calling sequences and strategy work don't be in in a hurry you know we have uh, you know some people you have a, a four-day weekend, or maybe you have a week off that you're going to take, or you, you know, you a total of nine days, or whatever your season is. People get panicked and they think, "Oh, this is the the I, I found this elk, and I've got to try to make something happen right now." Well, maybe if you just have some patience and let things unfold, your efficiency of calling and your efficiency in your encounters will go up, even though your urgency may not be going up that makes sense have some pay have more patience when you do get when you do find the elk and when you do get in on the elk and you start working the elk have more patience very good i was while you were talking there i jotted down three things one is focus on prime time whether that be prime time of the month you know pick what you think is the best week where you're going to get the most action focus on prime time um, if you do get them and they're real hot and they're going, stay in there with them, you know, lay up and, you know, stay away from them, but be there when, when the prime time, I, I know Chris, I know in Colorado specifically, you love that early season and, you know, you've had really good success in that August time frame. I also know a lot of people that have really struggled then when they don't have an effective strategy in play and they don't have um, those tools that you have in your quiver, um, that they can struggle. And so they pick out of the whole month, you know, they might pick the first week instead of maybe picking when there's a full, you know, a handful of bulls, maybe bugling. So I say, focus on prime time. Number two, um, take it more serious 
early and late. Get up earlier, stay later. Focus, you know, with all the people out in the woods, you've got to, you've got to be early. You've always got to be ready in case, you know, you have, you always have a contingency of time where you can dodge and weave if you have to. If you climb up a ridge and you get up there and there's, you know, some guy bugling before daylight and you know it's a hunter, you still have time to move. If you're always running late, you don't have time to dodge and weave. And then number three is play to your strengths. Um, You know, I think there's people that know they're good callers. I think there's people that know they're good, you know, spotting stalkers. I I think you got to play to your strength. If you're not a great, great caller, you don't make great sounds. You haven't been practicing. Um, I I wouldn't go that route. If, if you're a great caller, I would, you know, play to that strength of being a great caller. Yeah. Anything to add? Uh, no, no. I mean, you just uh, you, no. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, to go off of what you just said, because you, what you those three are are great. Because you know the for the prime time part of it, um, you're right. I mean, it, and everybody has to make a value judgment on what they that what they want to encounter during. You know, again, we we're talking about the month of September here, or 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 we're talking about the, the elk rut. Let's right. just say archery, probably in muzzleloader. Um, I think the reason why a lot of people struggle sometime in that early part of the season is is their, you know, the the popular sexy tactics of the day are bugling and going aggressive and chasing after those quote unquote rutting bulls. The problem is is that happens in a, in a that doesn't happen with all animals um, how at the same put, time. Yeah, exactly, and, and there's there's a cycle there. So, you know, there's a reason why I I on a lot of what I talk about in, in my calling strategies kind of focus on not playing to testosterone. You want if, if all you're doing is playing to testosterone and, and you're looking for that rut crazed bull, then man, you're limited on when and where you can go, when you can go, and, and the animals that you can go, and then you're limited on what the other hunters around you are are doing as far as disturbance versus if you can not necessarily rely on testosterone, but you can rely on innate behavior and the underlying core fundamental vocalizations and communication, you know, like you said, the, the, the tools in your quiver or your toolbox or whatever, you, you've got a lot more options. And so prime time, you know, if you're, if when we're talking, and I, I like that because, you know, everybody says prime time. Well, you know, We've talked about it on this podcast. You know, I've got that eight-part series on rethinking the rut. In some areas, the the best part of the rut is is the end of September. In some areas, the best bugling activity and the best rut might be second or third week of September. And then there's some years in some areas where literally the first week of September is actually the best. And so unless you're paying attention to what's going on with everything, it's going to be very difficult just to choose when that that rut fast is going to be. But you can pay attention eat within each different week of, of or as the season progresses, the behavioral cycle is going to be such that there's still going to be those prime times in there that you can get in there and actually make something happen. You're just talking about engaging an a- animal in a different uh, behavioral experience. Early pre-season, you know, pre-harem you know, pre development, you could have 
bulls bugling and you can do really well with bull vocalizations because maybe those bulls don't have cows right then. And maybe they aren't as receptive to cow vocalizations. Maybe they're more interested in what other bull activities around them. Well, it's still trying time. I mean, you, you can, if you have the right tools and know how to, you know, employ the right tools, you can crush it. And that's why I used to love that last week of August in the right place. You could just absolutely kill it because the bulls didn't have cows yet. They were seeking cows. They were still trying to figure out their pecking order. So you had all tools on the tool uh, on the table that you could use. It was awesome. But then you get into some areas like in Arizona, you know, your the season is stuck at you know middle two weeks of September. Okay, well you've got a different behavior cycle that you're going to play to. But if you know what if you know what they're the elk are doing and you understand the underlying behavior behind it, you've got flexibility. And I, I absolutely love to stay early or get out there early and stay late. So many times I've got a thing in YouTube video about that. My last hunt in Colorado. So many times people are waking up and they're scrambling to get up the trail or get out of their, their tent. And man, the elk have finished bugling. An hour ago. I mean, I, I know you remember this down in Arizona. I mean, how many times would we get up, crap? I mean, what, 3 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. And get out there? So we're standing on a ridge, you know, an hour before the first side-by-side or ATV rolls down the road. And, I mean, we're, we're out there listening to bulls bugling. Texting you can each hear other. Them texting in, each other going, what do you got going? What, you know. Yeah, exactly. And you can... Yeah, you can literally shadow them in the dark. You're, you're, I mean, they're bugling, they're cow calling, and you're just walking behind them in the dark, just keep, not just keeping tabs on where they're going. And by the time the first vehicle, you can just hear the first vehicle tires go crackling down the road. Those animals shut up and they're gone. Well, hell, they're now a mile and a half off the, away from the road. You never know that those elk were right there unless you had been out there at three thirty in the morning. Listen, right. you can sleep, you can take a nap during the day, but get out there early, stay later. While everybody's back in camp climbing into their fart sack, a lot of times that's when the bulls are like, okay, or else finally are like, okay, I think it's safe now, guys. Where are you? Ah, you're over there. Excellent. Thank you. If, especially for those people that only have a four-day weekend to hunt or, or maybe say you took a week off. Okay, you've got limited time invest that time wisely yeah you're going to be tired you're going to be just beat absolute yes you are but you only have limited time so use that time wisely get out early stay out late and listen and tease that stuff apart because it'll pay huge dividends once the sun starts once the light starts creeping up on the horizon Question here, Unit 61, Colorado, muzzleloader tag, keys for success in 2021. Well, I'm going to tell you, I would be glassing my butt off in Unit 61. There are some areas that are thick, but there are definitely some areas that you can see. Um, For me, you know, being able to locate and have a handful of different bulls located and kind of know their patterns and know the ridges that they like to go, the meadows, the you know, how they go in, how they go out, kind of their pattern um, going into the muzzleloader season. I think that would be the key to success. If I had a muzzleloader tag in unit 61, I would try and pick the areas that you could glass 
and at least see and be able to pattern some of those elk and, and try and find some of the best bulls. Uh, the other thing I would do is I would kind of get a bead on where the pressure is during the archery hunt. I would probably talk to as many archers as I could, stay out of their way, you know, glass, don't be in there calling and, you know, messing them up. But um, communicating with other hunters and being polite. And sometimes that means, you know, sitting at a trailhead and just sitting in your vehicle and waiting for someone to come back, not out actively seeking someone. Um, and just have a chat. How's it going? You know, I'm got an, I've got a muzzleloader tag and, you know, here's my number. If you see a, you know, I'm looking for this kind of bull. If you see something, love to hear about it. Um, it's, it's amazing. And Chris, I'm curious your thoughts on this question, but it's amazing to me how many people are willing to help others because they've been chasing them with their bow, uh, and, and maybe can't get it done, or maybe they've shot a bull and they're, you know, they basically serve up a great bull and say, Hey, there's a really good six by six. He's working this Ridge and, you know, maybe even have a video of them or a picture of them. And, and, uh, sometimes those people, even I've seen it where those people even want to help and say, Hey, I'm, I'm here all month. I've already killed my bull. I'll, you know, I'll glass for you or something. So Chris, your thoughts. Yeah. Especially on a limited draw unit like that. It's you know, I don't, it'd be interesting in how many points, and I don't know if you're in front of your computer right now to find out um, how many points it took to get 61 tag this year, muzzleloader. But a lot of times on those limited draw, you know, hunts, people know that they they're not going to come back. They're not going to be back there to hunt next year. It, it, so it's not like oh, if I give you this information, you're going to screw me next year because next year you'll be right back in here and you're going to mess up my hunting hole. No, if it took you 10, 12 points or whatever that person's not coming back. And so, yeah, the, I, yeah, what you said when you're talking about a limited draw unit, a lot of times people are very interested in helping you as long as they're not going to, you know, screw themselves. Obviously, if you're dealing with an archery hunter who's in the middle of their hunt during that same week and, and they're trying to get on a bull, no, they're not going to share that information with you. But yeah. if you're at the trailhead, when a group is leaving, they've been in there for the past week, 10 days, they're getting ready to head home and you're like, Hey, how'd it go? You know, what, you know, can, can I just anything? Can you, can you share anything with it? You know, how's the activity been? Where, where's, where have you been finding what, you know, what have they been, what have you tried and what are they, what are they biting on and what are they not responding to? Just any of that information is good to have. And, and yes, in those limited drawing, it's a lot of times people are willing to help you a little bit more. Because they know that they're not going to be back there anytime soon. Um, and then the other thing that I would say, because I, yeah, I, just in addition to what you said, Jay, is you need to spend some, 61 in particular. I know some of the best places that get into those rut paths where you can get some really good action are those thick, steep, nasty pockets, those little canyons and those back little. You need to figure out access. How can I get? To where I hear, or how, or where can I, how can I get to where I see elk? And more importantly, not even from a road or a trailhead, which there's not. I mean, there's roads, but can I walk down that ridge and access that valley bottom, or is it all cliffed out with boulder fields and and sheer cliffs and rocks? And it, 
and or is there private that I've got to cross and how do I get to those? There you go. And that's why, um, Chris, you know, monitoring and observing and, and trying to use your eyes as much as you can to figure out what they're doing would be what I would be doing. Then figuring yeah. like Chris is saying, how do I get to those elk? Uh, to answer your question, Chris, I looked it up on Gohan Insider. 16 points as a resident, 25 as a non-resident. That's according to Gohan Insider. Um, so, you know, yeah. that's a coveted tag. That's taken a long yeah. time to get. And so you yeah. want to make the most of it. And I believe that muzzleloader hunt, there's an archery hunt, they overlap. So, you know, some of those, Correct. some of those archers, like you said, it's not like Arizona where the muzzleloader goes after some of those archers are not going to be your friend at all. They don't want to talk to you. They don't, you know, not all of them, but some of them are not going to want to share anything. But, you know, if, if you've been seeing a camp the last three, four, five days and you've been scouting and all of a sudden you see that, hey, they're packing up, pull in there, talk to them doesn't hurt the last thing they could tell you just you know to piss off um that's the worst thing that could happen but you know they might say hey yeah i shot a nice you know six by six a you know 300 inch bull and man we were on some great bulls oh really i've got a muzzle attack oh man you need to go check this out boom right there during midday when you're not doing anything else there you've got some great information maybe it's a different area maybe it's another spot that you haven't thought of um you know, I'm a huge yeah, proponent of, of staying out of people's way. And if they're hunting and yours hasn't started, stay out of their way and, you know, maybe flip it around and help them, you know, say, Hey, I'm here yeah. scouting. I'll help you. And then, you know, yep. then you yep. help me. Um, but exactly. you know, that's a great tag. He does have some follow-up questions here, uh, in regards to 61, it says, uh, herd bull has cows pre-estrus. What strategy are you using to get the bull? So herd bull has cows pre-estrus. So it sounds like maybe the bull's just sniffing around with them. Um, what strategy yeah. are you going to use? Well, it's all, I mean, again, I'm going to start me personally. I'm going to start again. I'm going to probably stick with my passive or I mean, my targeted strategies, cow vocalization strategies. And if the, and I know that area and I'm going to caveat this with saying the wind can be at night that can be problematic down there. So if the wind is, is not consistent and it's not predictable and it's not helping you, then just stay out, stay out of it. But quite honestly, sometimes when those bulls, when the cows are not fired up, or excuse me, the bulls are not fired up because cows aren't coming into estrus. They're, all they're doing is they're just camped out on their cows. They're just, they're just shadowing their cows, keeping tabs on their cows. Now, there's, I'll let anybody that wants to talk about bugling strategies go for it. They can talk about bugling strategies because, yeah, you could probably use some here, but you can also blow those animals out. I would like to just sneak in, get close, and see if either I can't sucker him out to just come out and check me out as another cow or if I can call some of those cows out to me. And if, if I can do that late morning, if the wind is consistent and I can shadow those animals in close to their bedding area and I can get right on the edge of their bedding area, I'll just set up and use cow vocalizations and make it sound like a cow and a calf or something just sitting off the side. And I'll, cause he's going to get up periodically during, while they're bedded and he's going to round, he's going to come around and scent check all those cows. He's just going to keep tabs on them. And if there's another couple of cows that are nearby and his cows are already bedded down and safe and secure, 
and he does not believe there's another bull around. This is Again, you, you throw a bugle in that mix and you're done because now he believes there's another bull nearby. I'm not going to leave my cows. But if, he, if, if there's no other bull nearby and you have not been bugling and, not, and you have not put in his head that there's a bull nearby, if all you are doing is sound like a couple cows and calves that are just right there on the outskirts of his existing group, the number of bulls that I've called it, you know, mid to late morning out of their bed, it's a, it's awesome. I mean, they'll just, I mean, they may not bugle at you. They may just mew at you, but I don't care. I just want to get him to come up and just come gently, calmly, relax, just come out, just see if they can check out who is on the outskirts of my cow-calf group, come in and check you out. And with a muzzleloader, goodness gracious. All he needs to do is step out 80, 100 yards and give it quick and down in that country, Ponderosa Pine. Yes, you've got the moat brush and stuff, but geez, Pete, all he needs to do is step his head out to the clearing and give you a shoulder and thank you. Yeah. Um, there's, let's see, the same guy. He's got a bunch of questions here. It's pretty awesome. A bull has a lot of, let's see, a bull has a hot cow, lots of other bulls bugling around. Those bulls aren't interested in coming to my cow calls. How can I get a better bull than just a satellite to come in? So it sounds like he's, a bull's got a hot cow, lots of chaos and bugling around. Those, he's saying those bulls aren't interested in coming to my calls. How can I get a better bull? So he's, he's got satellites that are coming in. How does he get one of those better bulls? Well, I mean, that's the classic situation where people talk about, you know, getting aggressive and, you know, screaming at the bull and, you know, blah, 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 using bull. And, and that, yeah, absolutely, that may be the case. That may be what you need to do if, if the, and that's the thing. I don't know if this is a scenario that he's dreamt up in his mind or if he had this past experience and didn't know what to do. But quite honestly, if, if, the, if the case is in fact that, there is a cow that is about to come into Esther. So it, and there's, they come into Estrus over a period of time, but you know, uh, uh, you know, over a period of, of several hours, but they're receptive to stand for a bull at a very short window of time. And so if that's, and that's usually what causes that chaos when, when that cow is really getting close and behaviorally, the other bulls, now everybody in the brother's uncle is going to smell the pheromones and they're going to be able to smell the fact that she's getting in close. And that's what kicks off that frenzy. But they also start seeing the actual herd bull and how he's courting that cow. And they're watching how that cow reacts to the herd bull and how she is acting in and around it. They, they start picking up on those body cues and they start picking up on those scents, the pheromone cues to where they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. I need to be in there, and it just becomes, no, they're not going to pay attention to you. They're not going to pay attention to you. That's where either A, and this is where I, I, I would agree with some of these other people that, that don't call at all. You very well may just want to use that thick cover to your advantage and use the chaos to your advantage and just start sneaking your way in there as close as you can and just penetrate that chaos, that ball of just chaos, and just get yourself in position to take a, a, a shot. Don't say a thing. Don't even let them know that you're there. Just use the wind as your advantage. Let the chaos unfold around you, 
and just charge in there and try to get yourself in position to make the shot. Again, we're talking about a muzzle loader here. Um, well, well and, you and, feel, and yeah, and to, to jump on that as well, um, you know, if you're hunting in terrain, he's got a muzzleloader tag in Unit 61, and he's got a chaos situation, and the, you know, the satellite bulls are coming in, but the better bulls aren't, you know, you don't have to get super close to be able to shoot him with a muzzleloader. So what I would be doing, if it were me, is I would be using my optics around my neck, and I would spot a bull that's bugling, go, okay, that's not a good bull. Uh, I'm going to keep moving. Okay, there's a bull bugling. Okay, and instead of treating it like you need to actually call in every bull that you hear bugling, try and put your eyes on every bull and rule them out and go, I'm not even going to waste my time. I'm not even going to waste my time. Okay, there's a good bull. I need to figure out how to get close to that bull. I think too many people get into those bugling frenzy situations and they don't know what to do. The reality is pick them off one by one, try and put your eyes on them, try and sneak close enough that you can see them and go, okay, that's not what I'm after. Turn your back and go completely go after another bull. And you know, it's a numbers game. If you're looking for a good bull, which it sounds like he is, don't mess with the satellite bulls. I might not even call like Chris is saying, I might just use my optics, try and get as close as you can where you can see them, but not too close that you can't then move around and go look for another bull. Um, but quit wasting time looking at or trying to call in every single bull just because it's fun. If you're trying to kill a good bull, you've waited either 16 or 25 years for a 61 <laughs> muzzleloader tag, you know. Just go from bull to bull to bull, not wasting any time on anything you don't want to shoot. Once you find one you want to shoot, then try and figure out, okay, how do I get close to that bull? And like Chris is saying, calling may not even be one of the strategies he might even use. He might not ever call to the bull. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing here because I feel like you're, I, I, I feel, I feel, um, what is it? I, I feel there might be a microaggression here. I, I feel I'm I'm starting to feel a little a little triggered because I, I feel as though you're drawing from some of your comments you're drawing from experience when we were sitting up on the dog knob and all those bulls are bugling down below us. You're sitting you're sitting up there on glass. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're sitting up there on glass. There are there's just dozens of bulls down at the timber below us bugling and I'm going Let's just go in there and play with them. Let's just go call them. And you're like, I got to see. I got to see. I just want to pick up. You got to see. Lay eyes. I'm like, yeah. screw that. Let's just go in and call them. Yeah, I mean, the reality is if, if you, you know, it sounds like the guy asking the question is wanting to shoot a good bull. And with yeah. a muzzleloader, you know, you're talking about a range of, you know, 75 yeah. yards to, I don't know, 150 yards, you know, Guys are shooting these muzzleloaders, you know, unbelievable now. But, you know, let's say a 100-yard range, you, you know, just get close, see what they are, and move on. Yeah. Try and look at as many bulls in the morning and as many bulls in the evening as you can. If it's me personally, I'm never even actually actively hunting. I'm up on a knob or I'm up on a ridge, and I'm trying to spot the biggest bull in the unit or the second biggest bull in the unit or the third and I'm trying to have names for them so I kind of know what's what, and I'm trying to categorize them, and then I'm going to go after and spend my hunt chasing those bulls. That's how I would approach it. Now, 
that's yeah. not everybody's approach. So a lot of people just want to have a great bugling hunt and call in bulls and all that. But I mean, if this is your chance to shoot a big one, put your eyes on a big one and go after him, study what he's doing, get an effective strategy as far as a stock and, you know, go in there and get him. Uh, he's got another question here. Would a, um, says muzzleloader elk tag bull is in his bedding area with cows no hot cows how would you hunt it so it's bedded area yeah, with cows yeah. but no hot cows so it sounds like quiet bugling yeah that that's exactly that's the scenario that i absolutely love because if i can you know again there's an if there that biggest word in this entire sentence is if or this conversation if it it if the wind is right, if the wind is consistent and I can, I know where they're bedded and I can get in on them and get close to them. Again, I've got, I don't know how many videos on the website now that show this. You get in close to those bedding areas as they're settling in, those cows are going to bed down first. The bull, a lot of times, a lot of times first. Cows are going to bed down. The bull is going to sit there and he's going to go around his harem just to figure out where all his girls are bedded, make sure everybody's there. He's going to keep tabs on them. And throughout the, the at least the first few hours of them bedded down, he's going to be sleeping. He's going to be, you know, chewing his cud. And he's going to get up on his feet. He's going to circle around. He's just going to keep an eye on who's who's what and who's around. And then he's going to bed back down. And he's going to get back up. He's going to check them. And he's going to bed back down. He's going to get up and check them. And meanwhile, during this entire time, the cows are going to get up. They're going to stretch their legs. They're going to nibble. And when a cow gets up and starts nibbling, if she starts wandering away, he's going to get out of his bed. He's going to come over. He's going to make sure that she doesn't wander too far. And then he's going to keep her. There's all this little activity going in and around that bedding area. And if I can sneak in and get right close to that bedding area, I can absolutely use strategic cow vocalizations and either call that bull right out to me or... I can call a cow or a calf out of that group and have them start feeding my way or moving my way. And if that cow gets up out of that bedding area and she starts coming over to check me out, he's not going to let her come out of that area without supervision. He's going to follow. And again, we're talking about a muzzleloader. Goodness gracious, you don't have to have them in your lap. Right. So, no, absolutely. Uh, but um, it's a, and, and let me just add this. This is where I talked about in the beginning about patience yeah, and not feeling like you need to be panicked. If you just, uh, if all of a sudden you're in one of those canyons and you find a good bull that's got cows and you, and you watch or you can hear, or you know, they're going into this certain little pocket and they're going to bed down and there's no one else around. You haven't seen any other hunters or, or the other hunters are going the other other direction and there's just no one else around and the wind is not good. The wind is not right. I, again, me, I'm the guy that says, I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to try to push in there and be aggressive to start to try to make, and then risk blowing them out of that pocket. Maybe today is not the best day to have, to, to have it, to, to try anything. Maybe what I do is just let them get out of their beds this evening. I just keep tabs on them. Let them get out of their bed in the evening. I'll go and try to play with them in the evening. But if no one bumps them that night, I go back the next morning, and they're still in the same cycle. And they're, they're already going back to bed, and here they are. They're going back to bed in the same area. You might be able to pattern them for day one, two, three, 
and maybe it's day four that you actually have a great opportunity to capitalize on them. Well, if you've let them do what they want to do and they feel safe in that area, let them feel safe. Let them maintain that, that consistent activity. It's predictable. You already have it figured out. And now you have multiple days of iterations to figure out how did they get to the bedding area? Where did they stop? Where did they start bugling in the evening? Okay, now I know right where they are to where maybe you give it a couple days and then go in and try to make the play. Listen, I'm, and this is the other thing, too, with that, that previous question. Let's not pretend that we don't know where that question's coming from. Because quite honestly, that original question about you got a fired-up bull, he's bugling, there's bulls bugling around him, and no one's responding to a call, what do I do? Or this is a layup shot for Joel Turner. That's literally a Joel Turner scenario where you charge in there and scream at him, you know, make him make him put up or shut up or, and make him seem like you're, you're trying to steal his cow or whatever. Most of the people that are out there that, that love the bugle, that love the, the aggressive strategy, this is the layup. This is the, the, I mean, this is it. This is the low-hanging fruit. And so that's why a lot of people want to know, oh, what would, I, what would I do? Well, okay, can you use that tactic? Absolutely you can. Is that tactic successful? It absolutely can be. In the right scenario, in the right situation, with the right execution, which is the which are the exact qualifications that Jay and I are putting on our, on this discussion. I'm just I'm just choosing not to choose the aggressive strategy first. I'm not saying don't think about using uh, an aggressive bugling strategy when all else is you know nothing else is working. Okay, that's fine. But if you do that on day one and it doesn't work, answer yourself this. Now what? You know what I mean? I mean, if it took five days to find a good bull and you only have one more day to hunt, now what? Are you just going to eat your tag and, and not, not fill a tag? Or are you going to try to have to go in there and try to set? I, I just caution people in these. In 61, it's going to be no different. Yes, is it, is it a limited tag? Yes, it is. But you are going to have other hunters in there. And the terrain is such that it could end up concentrating hunters in certain areas because those certain areas are either A, more easily accessible, or B, there's bulls bugling in a certain area. And Jay, you and I have seen it, whether it's Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Montana, it doesn't matter. If all of a sudden a bugling frenzy shows up and other hunters hear it, gee, is, are the other hunters going to go, huh, that sounds like a bunch of elk bugling over there. Eh, we probably ought to go look somewhere else. Or are they going to go, that's where we need to go. And everybody and their brother's uncle just piles in. So just understand, you may not be the first person that's going to engage these animals, and likely you won't be. So you don't have a clue in the world at how pressured they are truly. So that, again, this is my philosophy, but this is what I talk about on my website, but my philosophy is start low, work up. I will call as much as I need to, but never more than I have to. And so just understand that. That Yeah, there's going to be some people listening to this they are like, oh, no, no, go in there and bugle the stream at them. Okay, yes, you can, and it might be successful. Just consider starting with a, a, a less intrusive strategy 
and then moving up as necessary. Does that make sense, Jay? Yeah, and I think it all depends on his, you know, goals and and motivation for the hunt. Like, you know, if, if if he's looking for the bull of his lifetime and he's you know trying to kill a bull bigger than the one he's killed before, then it you know kind of becomes simple. Of like, you know, he's killed a three thirty five bull. He's trying to beat that. Then just go search with your eyes, and and go find one that's bigger and shoot him. Like, don't don't get caught up in the weeds too much. If you're just you know, wanting to have a phenomenal hunt and you don't necessarily, you just want to kill a nice bull, then maybe the thing to do yeah. is just go play with them and jostle around and go get aggressive and do all that. But I mean, if, there you go. if, if I'm looking there you go. for a giant bull, I'm going to do everything I can to not interrupt that bull's pattern in any way and give me the most efficient and effective way and time to kill him. And, and that is giving him his space and choosing an optimal time and, you know, taking some of these strategies that Chris talks about and, and using that strategy, but at the perfect time to have everything line up and meet up to shoot something big, you sometimes have to lay off and say, it's not set up right. It's not a good situation. I'm not going to go in there. I'm going to wait. It may take two or three days. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to kill a big giant, you don't get many opportunities. And so you have to kind of capitalize on when it comes. But that means also not blowing them out and changing this pattern because then you're back to ground zero. Uh, yeah. Same question yep. here. Would a, or same same guy would a, uh, would a calf sound be effective for bulls or mainly cows? I've seen it work both ways. I've seen calf sounds work great. As a finishing call, when you get in pretty close, um, I've got a little kind of squeaky calf sound that I make with my diaphragm, and I've had it work really, really well when you when you move in really close to those elk, to both bulls and cows. Um, Chris? Yeah, it sounds like he needs to get an elk module subscription. Cause... He does. <laughs> he does. Tell people how yeah, to do no, that, I mean, by I, the way. The, the, what's that? Tell people how to do that, by the way. Oh, just rowhuntingresources.com. R-O-E, huntingresources.com. You're going to see in there, there's a, you know, there's the elk, the educational stuff, there's consulting, there's, you know, deer hunts, you know, guided hunts type stuff. So just click on the educational materials and you'll see in there there's an elk uh, module that you can click on. You can either do a quarterly one for like 25 bucks still, and then the annual one is still 50 bucks. Um, but yeah, all these, I mean, so much of this conversation is, is all in there. And, and the, the reason why I laugh at this one is because heck, I've given, I've, I've given this exact seminar, um, probably about half a dozen times now and, and discussing half vocalizations for the purpose of calling in both why it works. Um, and, and Jay, you, I mean, like we've just talked about before. If the point is to kill the bull, in my mind, it is irrelevant on whether, A, the bull vocalizes back to me when I'm in my calling seat. If, if I'm using, if I'm calling as a tool to, to get the animal to step out and give me a shot. So I'm, I'm actively calling. 
If my goal is to kill the animal, I don't care if he responds to me vocally and he starts to bugle at me or whatever. Or if he comes in silently. Likewise, I don't care if he's coming to my call because he is engaging my call. Or if he's coming to me because a calf that was in the group is coming to me and the mother got up and started, or the babysitter got up and she wants to keep tabs on that calf. So she starts coming to me and then the bull is like, well, where the heck are these girls going? I better keep an eye on them. And he gets up out of his bed and walks halfway and I can see him and I can shoot him. If my, if I'm using the tool of calling to put the bull in a position where I might be able to get the shot, Cap vocalizations are squarely in the realm of the one of the tools I'm going to grab out of that toolbox. Absolutely, they can work. So, yeah, no. It, again, and this is, <laughs> again, I a lot of times I focus hard on talking to people and saying, don't necessarily, and I just qualified that for myself, but let's just be honest. Don't, I, I don't, I, don't play the testosterone. Don't play to testosterone. Your own, your own or the bulls. <laughs> there you go. That's a fair, that awesome, awesome add-on. Awesome add-on. Excellent. Yes. You, you don't need to. There's so many fundamental vocalizations that you can use to reach right down into the just the core of their communication that you can tell a bull, I want, I, give me a response. A lost new, lost calf call, doesn't matter. Lost news are asking for a, a response. Typically, that means vocal, but it doesn't have to be. It can be it can be physical, visual, because of again the see you first principle that I talked about. So yes, it's asking for a response, but that response might be visual, and that uh, doesn't matter. Yeah, to answer his question, yes, yes, lost news, lost cat calls, all those. Yes, those are squarely in my repertoire. That is literally a fundamental backbone of of my targeted strategy. A calling strategy that I call in 95, 97%, 8% of all my encounters are, are that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Next question. Is cow calling through a bugle tube unnatural to the elk? Has Chris Rowe tried it? Yes, I have. I used to I used to be of the opinion that I I didn't like it through a bugle tube or any tube, um, because it it can sound different than what you normally hear on the landscape. But again, on the, in the module, when we start talking about understanding vocalizations, uh, and, and even just this latest seminar they did, looking at the bell-shaped curve of just standard probability of, of what animals you're going to uh, run into on the landscape, Yes, the vast majority of the of the cows and calves are going to sound a certain way. But you can have those cows that are on either end of the spectrum that might be a little bit more, you know, deep and raspy, or some are a little higher pitch and bird-like. I mean, quite honestly, it's a joke. You know, you, you hear people blow on a, one of those really old Siri game calls, and you're like, that sounds stupid because it sounds like a little bird. <laughs> and until you're standing in front of a cow elk or a calf that, that does it, it sounds just like it. And you're like, oh, my word. Well, the same thing holds true with 
uh, running a cow call through a bugle tube. Do, do I do it for the bulk of my calling? Absolutely not. Nope, nope, nope. But if I want to try to change it up and add a different vocal signature on the landscape or within my calling sequence, yes, I will. Because I've got video of cows that are vocalizing that literally it sounds, the, 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 the tonal signature sounds very similar to what it, what we sound like when we blow, uh, you know, we cow call through a bugle tube. But again, it's not your normal cow on the landscape. So is it realistic? Yes, it can be. Is it a dominant sound on the landscape? Mm, no, not necessarily. Just have it in your back pocket as something to throw a little diversity to your calling, is my, my opinion. Next question. Is the hyper lip double still the best for making a come here cow call yeah he's talking about the assembly mute. um in my opinion it is i i, I don't know of a I, I do not know of another seriously i don't know of another call physical elk call on the market that can do it like the hyperlip double can and if anybody knows of one, I would love to, to, I would love to see it. I, I absolutely love to have it. But yeah, in my opinion, hyperlift double with tone converter, money. Real fast, Chris, explain to them what an assembly mu is. So a lock mu is asking for a response. Assembly mu does not ask you for a response. It asks for an action. It says, I want you to come to me, come here. So you'll get it, adult cows will use it. Um, predominantly, especially when they're talking with their calf, it just basically flips that, that lost view 180. So it accentuates the, the, the low pitch of the, of the, uh, of the vocalization. But yeah, it's absolutely, it's a, it's a, it's a, again, part and parcel of, I mean, it's literally my bread butter on the targeted strategy stand using a lost view, getting a response, figuring out where they are and then moving in, getting it close and then flipping around and just hitting those assembly views to where say, I want you to come to me. Now, you're not asking them for a response again. So they may not bugle at you. Good that you didn't ask them to. All you're asking to them is for them to come from wherever they are to your location. And so you've got to be cognizant of that. It might take, they might take their time and it may take 30 minutes or an hour and they may never vocalize. If they, if quite honestly, the most common vocalization, yeah, quite honestly, the most common vocalization in response to that while they're coming is a mew. A bull mule just, eh. and that's all you hear other than that, you know, maybe you hear some footsteps coming through the rocks or the twigs or whatever, but you just may hear a mule and the number of people are like, oh, oh, there's a cow coming. No, sometimes yes, but a lot of times, no, it's the bull. You told him, come to me. Okay. And the beautiful thing part about that is the reason why I use it so heavily is because if it's a mature cow. A mature cow is not going to tell another elk to come to her location unless she feels safe and secure. So if she feels safe and secure, then why wouldn't another animal come to her? So, no, it, it's a, it's a phenomenal... Why more people aren't using that vocalization is beyond me. Other than they just don't understand it and they don't trust it. But everybody who does, it's, it's, everybody that's messaged me back is like, oh, my gosh, that's unfair. It's a game-changer. Don't tell any more people about it. 
Next. It is. I mean, that's the thing. And I talk about this all the time. I mean, this is why I say don't play to testosterone. Why? Because a cow is going to communicate to her calf from the first day it's born until either it dies, she dies, it dies. If it's a, if it's a cow, that the cow calf is most likely going to stay within the home range of the mother. If it's a bull, she's going to kick it off at some point. But the entire time that that calf is with that cow, she's talking to that calf, telling it to come nurse. Well, of course a, a mature bull is going to remember that. He knows what that is. I did a video for uh, the Elk Collective guys, uh, and this is part of, it was part of the, my philosophy and, and kind of understanding my philosophy. So for anybody that, you know, went over there, you know, to kind of understand who I was, it's like, what? here's my philosophy. What, what, why am I going to play to testosterone on an animal when I have no idea what animal, unless I see it, I have no idea what age class that animal is yet. I don't know what that animal has gone through as far as getting pressured. and you know, Whether it's pressured by hunters, whether it's pressured by other bulls in the area, other elk in the area, I have no idea. I don't know if that animal has been in this area and relaxed for X amount of time, or this animal just has has gotten pushed out of its other previous area. It's now six ridges over. It's standing in a, in a, a chunk of real estate it's never stood in before, has no idea what. I don't know the headspace of that animal. Why in the world am I going to assume that it's fired up and, and raging on testosterone and blah, blah, blah? I don't know any of that. What I do know is from day one at birth, there are few core fundamental vocalizations that they talk with. Lost news and assembly news being the core of that. Why in the world would I not go there and offer that animal a semblance, an idea, a hope of safety, stability, and direction? If, I, if I'm dictating the pace of this, I'm saying, I want you to give me a response. That's it. Oh, okay, I can bugle at you, or I can cow call at you, or I can chuckle at you, or I can whatever. I just ask for a response, very basic level of, of request. Or then I turn around, I give an assembly view, say, hey, just come to me. Come to me. Goodness gracious. I don't care if you're the biggest herd bull on the mountain, or if you're the most insecure raghorn. A mature cow tells you to come to her location. Obviously, she feels safe. Obviously, she knows what she's doing. So why in the world am I going to question it? I'll at least just go over there and check it out. Start there. Build up from that point. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. It's There's a couple questions here. Uh, did you know, does Chris know the Arizona Game and Fish paid social media influencers and YouTube influencers to pr promote hunts in Arizona? ultimately ended up canceling the hunts. So, Chris, let me lay the groundwork. I don't know if you know this. A couple years ago... No, I don't. The Game and Fish um, paid a bunch of social media influencers and YouTube influencers. You know them. You probably know all of them, handfuls of them. They paid the guys to come down, do over-the-counter archery deer hunts, this year, they just passed, I think they closed 27 different units because of the archery success 
went up and when it reaches a, when it reaches a certain level of success they shut the hunts down because they have a formula and yeah. this guy's wanting to know what your thoughts are on well i mean i could name them but we all know who they are that the fan the the popular youtube channel the popular social media platforms um, got paid and then the game and fish shut it down because it was, it got too many. So they needed interest. They wanted to promote interest. They got interest and they shut the hunts down thoughts. The old adage apply, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. <laughs> Does that blow you away? Yeah, well, it, it, I think it's hilarious because, no, it doesn't blow me away. It's, in my mind, that's to be expected. If you're going to artificially inflate the demand, A, yeah, goodness gracious. If you're going to broadcast to the world, let me take a step back. You know, Jay, that, you know, like, let's, let's just say this. Oh, let, I, let me say I, one. I let me say one thing real fast. I personally confirmed with multiple groups that yes, they did get paid. So I just want to be clear that I'm not. This is a question that's come in. I did some investigating, not today, weeks, months ago. I reached out, said, "Did you get paid to promote?" Yes, we did. So it is a fact they got paid to promote. They uh, several of them were shocked and flabbergasted to hear that those hunts had been shut down. But go ahead, Chris. Well, so okay, you know, coos deer hunting, cows deer, should be accurate here. <laughs> coos deer hunting in Arizona is kind of a niche market, right? I mean, there's you you either love coos deer hunting or you just don't, or or or, or, or more it. likely you're. you're Correct, or you've never done it, and, and you've not been exposed to it. And and quite honestly, for a lot of people, they don't even know anything about it, or even the fact that maybe there's over-the-counter tags, and this is these are the areas that you can go. And, and mule deer both, so, coos and mule deer yes. over-the-counter, in the rut in January. Yes. Yeah, so if, if the let's just say 90% of the population is not aware of this opportunity. And you go out and you ensure that the other 90% of the population becomes aware of this opportunity, then you obviously know that there's going to be an influx of people that are going to take advantage of this opportunity, especially given the first question we had about, or one of the first questions about this COVID crap, where people have, they've got vacation days and they, or they just have forced time off or they're just not working or whatever, and they've got free time on their hands, uh, of course there's going to be more people that show up. And more people who show up, more likely you're going to have a higher rate of harvest, especially these days, this day and age. I mean, the level of knowledge, even though we're answering these questions, I mean, that's why we're answering these questions, is to elevate the level of knowledge hunters have going in the field. Well, today, I mean, goodness gracious, the skill set of, of people even just starting out in archery is phenomenal. The, the clothing, the optics, the, the GPS, the, uh, the on-axe maps, the, 
all the technology that we have available to us absolutely catapults hunters into a different level than when I was a kid, you know? So even the average Joe that, I mean, that didn't know about these opportunities, that was an exceptional killer of a hunter to, you know, on, in their own right, begin with, well, of course, if, if more people like that show up to do a hunt, of course they're going to have more harvest. And if they're going to have a harvest quota system, it's, of course it's going to get shut down. I mean, the agency, hey, the agency got their money's worth. The agency got exactly what the agency wanted. They wanted to get exposure for these hunts. They wanted to increase interest in it. They wanted to sell some tags. They got all three of those. What they didn't count on was that all those people, the, the, the number of people that came in just killed a piss pile of deer and it met the quota. Okay, well, they had to shut it down. Well, they still got the license, didn't they? Did they issue refunds afterwards or did they not? I, I don't no, know. I'm no, no, refu- no refunds, but what do you say up to the resident that's enjoyed that hunt for 20, 30 years of just opportunity to just be out, maybe hardly ever kills a deer. Now, all of a sudden, that hunt is completely off the table in 27 units because they got the grand idea to pay influencers and say, well, let's see if this will work. Oops, it worked too good. Now we got to shut down opportunity. One thing that I find very interesting is a lot of these people that they paid are huge proponents of public land DIY opportunity. And what they did is they just took money and they actually, am I wrong? They actually shut down opportunity. So it's actually, what's the word? It's a oxymoron. It's a, what am I looking for? It's like, it's so ironic that their platform is DIY public ground you know, do it yourself, you know, go, go, go. Oh, by the way, we got paid to promote it. And oh, by the way, they just shut 27 units down. That seems quite honestly, if, if I would honestly. have gotten money for doing that and my platform was, you know, promoting public land hunting, promoting DIY, which it is, but if it was my major platform, I would be embarrassed. I, I would say I'm going to give the money back to the people of Arizona or something because that's just ridiculous in my mind. Well, if you were that type of person, your your ideology, your your probably based ideology would be, I don't know, did you ever, I sent you a link. Did you ever watch that video that I did, I Understanding didn't. Ideology? I didn't. Okay. Um, it's on my website. I'm going to do the part two here coming up. Um, but anyway. No, I, I guarantee those people would see this as a success. They achieved what they're what the they got paid to promote a hunt to get more people out on public land. What happened? More people got out on public land. Win win. Oh, so well, it's not their fault that everybody was was successful. It's not their fault that the quota was met. The is, the issue here in their mindset would most likely be. We got paid to promote people to get out and take advantage of an opportunity on public lands in Arizona. And that is what people did. They, they got paid to, do, to deliver a package of goods, and they delivered those goods. The unintended consequence, if I, was gonna, if I wanted to play that argument, if I want to play devil's advocate, the unintended consequence falls on the agent. Absolutely. Don't pay, 
don't don't pay me to promote something. You, you came to me to promote something because you know my platform is good, and you know my voice. People people listen to my voice, and they do what I what what I tell them. Or people listen to me, and they do what I I value or recommend. And if I tell people to go out and enjoy the public land, guess what? There's going to be a piss pile of people who go out and enjoy the public land. If you're not ready for those people to show up on the landscape and enjoy those public lands, well, then don't ask me to promote it. Because, you, you, you're, you're, again, you get what you pay for. Be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And I think the agency here, I, I, I don't know these. I, I, literally, dude, I'm so out of the loop on this one. I, I can't wait to talk to you afterwards. Chris, you Friday. know them all. You know, I, you sure know every one of them. You know, you, you literally, the five or six or seven of them, you know every one of them. I, well, then there you, then there you go. Uh, they, to their credit, they did, they did what they were paid to do. It was the agency who underestimated the efforts. They, they should have, jeez. That's the thing is that sometimes I look at these agencies and I just shake my head and I'm like, what did you think was going to happen? Right. You know, like, I, I can literally, I literally think back to Colorado, pronghorn, archery pronghorn, okay, in eastern Colorado. You know what eastern Colorado looks like. It, I, I used to use the analogy, if you wanted to hunt pronghorn with a bow in eastern Colorado, imagine hunting on your local golf course and hiding behind the sprinkler head. That's literally what you're going to do. It is wide open. It, it, there's not sagebrush. In many areas, there's very little hills and terrain. It's wide open, and it's tough to hunt. And people used to go to the northeast part of the state, Pawnee grasslands and a bunch of public ground, and they used to hunt pronghorn like crazy. And people promoted it, and it started getting more and more popular, and more and more people did it, and there was more and more conflict, and then the harvest rate started going up, and blah, blah, blah. All these things happened. So the Division of Wildlife said, okay, well, we need to get control of this for harvest objective and quota stuff for, A, that, landowner conflicts, hunter conflicts, all things considered, we need to make this unit or this group of units limited draw. We have to we have to control the harvest content a little bit. Well, then what did everything, what, then what did people do? They literally picked up, all the over-the-counter people picked up and went to the next unit to the west and just saturated the ever living bejeebas out of it. Just massacred that one. Because the demands for the hunt were it far exceeded the number of opportunities that go. Well, guess what? Like the year after that, all of a sudden, boom! That limit that that hunt is now limited draw. It's like, well, what did you expect? So yeah, I, in my opinion, the, the the agency got exactly what they wanted. They wanted to promote it. They wanted to make money off those license sales, and they did. And they achieved their harvest objective. As far as the agency is concerned, it's a win-win. As far as the, the social media influencers, they did their job. They got paid for a service, and they accomplished that service. It's the public that takes the shaft, like it always does. And so the only option, is if people are disgruntled by it, get involved with your agency. Sit down and start demanding meetings and discussions and Come up with a solution. Otherwise, shut up and write the, write your check and buy your license and just be a good little sportsman and pay the pay the bill. <laughs> Next question from the same guy. Ask Chris what he thinks about the trail cam ban in Arizona. 
He's really stirring the pot, isn't he? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait. He's the guy that just lights an M80 and walks it in, dumps it in the toilet, <laughs> and then he walks out. <laughs> With a smile on his face. I'm just, just going to blow up the shit or just going to blow up the bathroom and just walk out. <laughs> you guys deal with the aftermath. I, dude, I don't, man. I, listen, and I'm a, I'm a, I, uh, shoot, I don't know how much time you want to spend, but I've got a, an entire podcast outline sketch. Well, let, let me just put it Give me the brief synopsis because we got other questions too. Okay, brief synopsis is, is I, I it doesn't surprise me. Number one, it, it absolutely doesn't surprise me um, from an agency standpoint. It does not surprise me. Um, I, like you and I talked about previously on on our previous discussion about this. Neither one of us. I, I'm not going to speak for you. I don't have a dog in the fight. I can operate either way. I don't care. Um. I really don't care about this band. Quite honestly, in my opinion, I'm more concerned about what the unintended consequences are going to be on the landscape during an active hunt than I am concerned about what was going on with the game cameras themselves. Because at least with game cameras, one guy could come in and check a camera and he and he could check for he could he could check it once a week or once every couple of days, and he would get all the information he, he or she needs. Now, are, are we going to just be? Are, are those every is every waterhole going to be bombarded with scouts and helpers and outfitters and guides and everyone else during prime time hours coming in there to try to lay eyes on animals because they can't use a game camera? Are we? Are we? Did we just shoot ourselves in the foot? From, from administratively, from or, or from functionally on the landscape, by banning the, the game cameras, I don't. I don't know. The the thing that for me is just absolutely mind boggling is the response that I'm seeing and, and the questions I'm getting about certain individuals that we know that are spearheading opposition campaigns for this. I I, I really don't understand where. What, what they're thinking and where they're coming from. But I, I, I mean, I, I put it, I put an invitation out to Josiah to come and, and talk uh, with me. The problem, I think, I don't know that he declined. Um, but I probably, the reason why he declined is because I, I, I think I put right in there um, that I, I wanted to have a conversation with him, but um, it's not, well, here's, here. here here you go. Hey, man, hope everything interested in a podcast. Uh, we talk about the trail cam issue and what you guys are doing. If it, it won't be a softball discussion, I may have some different ideas, takes on a few things and may not sure respectfully disagree with you on a thing or two. And I mean, definitely respectful, just may disagree and debate a point or two. Cause that's what I want to do. I mean, good conversation. A, 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 yeah. But I, I but I, let's have a real conversation here. And, and I'm going to push back on some some ideas that are at least some things that I'm I'm perceiving. Well, for right now, so far he's declined. I don't know why, but no, I I don't I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't care. But I again, here here we go. What did we just say? Be careful. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Supposedly we, you know, the agency wants to ban the trail cameras because of safety issues and, and conflict issues around water holes. Well, now what? 
is it going to be 10 times worse now? Or is it all just going to magically go away? I don't think it's going to magically go away. I think it's going to get worse. It's going to be interesting to well, you, see how it shakes out. I, I just, I am against the ban from a standpoint of I think it hurts so many people that there are no conflicts in most parts of the state. You know, I've got lots of people that I know that run, especially for like coos deer. They're running cameras way up on springs and little, you know, licks and on, you know, just different things that nobody else is around. You know, you've got to hike miles and miles just to get there off the wall places and no one's going to go there anyway. Well, supposedly now though them putting a camera there is going to be illegal. I kind of mm-hmm. have a problem yeah. with that. Do I have I seen with my own eyes the problems that trail cameras create in, you know, some of the more popular elk units and some of the more popular, you know, mule deer units on the Arizona Strip? Yes, I've seen it firsthand. You know, I've seen the trick tanks that have, you know, 25 trail cameras on a post. I've seen it. I've seen the places in Unit 9 where there's cameras and literally there's guys coming in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, checking the camera. I've seen it. I don't know what the answer is, but I find it hard to believe that it went 5-0, you know, unanimous decision, ban them, you know, it seemed like the input from the public was against the ban, and I'm surprised it went 5-0. I'm not surprised it went 5-0. I'm kind of disappointed it went 5-0 because it seemed like it was decided before it was even discussed. And, well, of course, uh, of, you know, of course I, it was. I just, you know, I don't run tr- trail cameras in Arizona. Uh, I have before um, a, a very little very very little but i have so i don't want to say i've never run trail cameras but i would say in the spectrum of my hunting and guiding in arizona i would say less than one percent of the amount of time i've run trail cameras um you know i see from a mature animal standpoint i think probably you know some some younger bucks some younger animals will get harvested because the outfitters and guides and, you know, hunters that are running cameras won't know that there's a particular, you know, old gnarly buck around. Um, but yeah, it, time will tell. I don't really have a dog in the fight, so to speak. Uh, I do run cameras at the Ot 6 ranch on completely private ground, private ranch in Colorado. I feel like it's a totally different uh, scenario because it is private. You know, Hunter and I are the only two that check the cameras Um, We're not disturbing anyone else's hunt. And I think that's what, you know, ultimately, I think that's what got these cameras banned is that, you know, it was starting to really impact people's hunts. And I definitely seen it with my own eyes, but I think it was unit specific. You know, I think you could say, you know, 13A, 13B and unit nine for elk, those, those three particular areas you know, that's where the most problems were. And, you know, maybe they could have come up with a season or come up with the, you know, I don't, I, 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 I'm not for the complete ban, but it doesn't change what I do in any way. Once, you know, one way at all, it, it doesn't change my method of hunting. It doesn't, it won't change my, you know, harvest success. It won't change, you know, the, the size of animals that I harvest at all. Um, just because I didn't use trail cameras in Arizona, uh, very much anyway. So let's move yeah, on. Yeah, no. I... 
it is a fiery subject though there's very little people that are kind of in the middle and say they don't really care most people have an opinion one way or another uh what's the best thing to do in the middle of the day for elk in otc units so i don't know if he means otc units you know archery or rifle um i'm gonna assume he's talking archery but could be you know otc um hunts or rifle hunts what's the best thing in the middle of the day chris go back to camp (laughs) or lay under a tree and take a nap and quit bothering the elk and it goes back to something you said with another question don't fire all your bullets in the first day like don't go blow yeah don't have a bunch of elk in one spot but it happens all the time people just fire their whole quiver of bullets out there and they go now what do we do we've just chased this entire group because we got impatient and in the middle of the day we decided it would be a good idea to try and sneak in close to them well when elk when cow elk are bedded and you sneak in they see you before you see them almost every time they hear you before you see or hear them almost every time nothing good comes of that and i see it so much and you know, people being impatient and, and, you know, pushing areas, not trying to, but they do. And so what do you do midday? I, I agree with you. Go back to camp or, you know, lay under a shade tree and take a nap and let those elk be elk, let them stay in their pattern and their, and don't change their behavior. Now it, and yeah, in all honesty, though, seriously, that I, I listed it out as Number one, seriously, go back again. Most of the time, the wind is the wind currents are not going to be con- conducive to you sneaking in close. Um, that that's the number one issue: is wind currents, in my opinion. Because even if you can call them, and even even because don't get me wrong, I love calling elk midday. I love it, but it's only when the wind is predictable and I can put the wind in my favor, or at least where it's not going to screw me. But when that's not normally the case. It, in most of the time, the wind is going to screw you. So most of the time, I'm going back to camp and, and waiting out the heat of the day. If I can't, like you said, Jay, just what I say, get out of pocket. Just get yourself back out of the way to where your wind, the wind currents are not going to take your scent into where those elk are. And then just nap under a tree, hang out, just you know, relax and just kind of wait for things to unfold. And maybe at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, all of a sudden the bull starts bugling. And he's cruising the landscape. Well, okay, if you can work the wind again and, and he's fired up, but go go for it. Um, and if, if not, then the other one, if you know where an interior kind of wallow or water hole is, kind of tucked in the cover somewhere, and, and you can either tree stand or tree saddle, or you can just get the train or the, the wind, you can get the wind correct. To understand they're going to come into that water hole from the downwind side, if you can play the wind and keep your scent from entering their nose, just camp yourself over a little hidden dark pocket of water and wait it out. But I I love calling elk during the middle part of the day because you can be exa- extremely successful. However, most of the time, the wind is not going to help be on your side. The, the, the problem is, is nowadays, um, born and raised guys have really popularized and I get this question a lot more and more now that they did their video series. Because, I mean, I think they're waking up at like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. They're, they're, they're starting their day. They're, tearing, they're getting breakfast, tearing down camp, 
putting camp on their back, and they're heading out of camp at like 8 a.m. It's like, Jesus, Pete, my hunt's done by 8 a.m. You know what I mean? So there's, it's kind of gotten popularized, you know, about just walking the landscape all day long and calling, but it's a high-risk move that has more likelihood of blowing elk off the landscape than it is of, of putting elk in the ground, in my opinion. This, this is another question from another uh, Instagram follower, but it goes right along. How do you adapt to your OTC honey hole getting blown up with hunters discovering it? So you've got this great spot. You've hunted it for a couple of years. Chris, you have firsthand knowledge of this. All of a sudden you show up and there's just people everywhere and people have found the same thing you found. I think it's real easy to be upset and mad and angry, but the reality is you, you went in there or, you know, the hunter went in there and had some great times, some great days or some great years. Either someone talked or someone just happened to find it. And all of a sudden everybody found the same joy you found. How do you handle that? What do you do when your when your honey hole gets blown up? Well, like you said, I'm, I'm literally squarely in that realm right now. Cause my normal area has been highly discovered and, People know that that's they hunt there. Some people are going there specifically because they found out that I go there. Um, what I, to be honest, truthfully, introspectively for myself, here's what I went through. Number one, are the elk still there? If the elk are still there, let me rephrase that. If the elk are not, because I, I, what I dubbed as my high country camp, I haven't been back in years. Uh, simply because it did, you get blown out. The elk, the elk do not function on that particular portion of the landscape anymore due to, due to human pressure, period. End of discussion. So it's, there's no point in going back there. There really isn't. Because the elk aren't there. This other area of mine, are the elk there? Eh, sometimes. Okay, so if the elk are there, obviously I've hunted there for years. I know how to perform on that landscape. The next question is, is the hunt still enjoyable? Can I go in there on that landscape and can I still perform? Can I, can, can I, can I still have fun hunting there? If yes, then really, then okay, then just get better. Just get better than everybody else that's, that's going in there. Either find, go, find the little pockets of, of sanctuary that other people aren't figure out where the elk are going now that they didn't used to go or where they got pushed into now or where you're going to have to tease that stuff apart. And you're going to have to figure out what most other hunters on the landscape are doing as far as their tactics and strategies, and then do something productively different than they are. You're going to have to adapt. Um, if you don't enjoy that level of hunting pressure, then you're, move you're gonna have to you're gonna have to find another area to go hunt and that's kind of where i'm 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 really waffling for myself i know this particular area like i know that like for instance on september 7th between september 5th and september 8th or 9th but usually on september 7th there's going to be a mature bull walk across this one particular spot on the map every single year and if you're standing there you've got to crack at it i mean it's literally Every year, this particular spot, this is where it is. The question is, do I want to go in there and have combat bow hunting? No. 
I don't enjoy that. So I'm gonna have to see. I, I you know, I don't know if I if I go back down there. Uh, but I have other places that I can go. And this is where kind of what you talked and alluded to with Unit 61 kind of falls in. Relying on others, and not in a bad way. Hold on, hear me out. Relying on others to build your your information base. So. A lot of people want to come. A lot of people want to hunt with me, just like you, Jay. I mean, people are like, "Oh, I want to come hunt with you." I'm, I'm sure you do. Um, and for me, I'm I'm open to that idea. But the reason why you want to come hunt with me is because most of the places I go, I can perform in, and you perceive that level of success, and you want to enjoy that level of success. That's fine. I'd love to go hunt with you, but in order. For us to go, you have to have a place of your own that you know that that you've had consistent success in. Why? I want you to have skin in the game. I want you to buy. You. I want you. I, I I'm not looking to take someone as a charity case, and I'm going to show you all my secrets so that way you can have success. No, I want you to have success of your own. I want you to have an area that you're vested in already. Because then we can go have fun. Because if you do turn around and screw me, well, then I know where you normally hunt, and I can go over there and enjoy your honey hole after you've blown out my honey hole. But so over the years, I've developed a group of friends that we hunt together on and off over the years that I trust. And guess what? In years where their spot sucks, we go down to my areas. In in years where my area sucks, I go over in their areas. Oftentimes together, but if it's not together, I pick up the phone. I'm like, hey, so-and-so, are you hunting this year? Yeah. Are you going over here? Yes. Okay, when are you going? I'm planning going here and here and this time. About, okay, all right, never mind. That was when I was going to hunt anyway. Most of the time my buddies are like, doesn't matter, go anyway. No, I'm going to stay out of that area while you're there because this is your area. This is your hunt. I'm going to stay out. But there's some areas that are like, oh, I can't make it this year. I'm not going to be able to go down there. Okay. And instantly their statement is, dude, go. Because they want to know about what's going on down there. So we have this network of areas that we all now have. We respect each other's boundaries. We respect each other's hunt. But now we have multiple areas across the state that we can pull from. When one area goes to crap, we might have two or three other areas we can fall back on. I tell people all the time, you need to learn your area and learn your area well so that you can perform over time. But you also should always have a backup or two in different regions of your state. So that way, if there's a drought in one area or a fire in one area, it doesn't just kill all your options. You can go to a different area of the state. Having what you said, Jay, in the beginning, you know, relying on other people, absolutely do that. Rely on other hunters, but develop a network of friends that you guys can all trust one another and be able to utilize each other as a resource and, and diversify your footprint across the landscape so that way you can have a consistent level of expectation of performance year in and year out, no matter where in the state you go. Definitely good stuff. Uh, next question is September 1st through the 12th, mature bull tactics for a hunt. Um, I got to put you on mute here for a second. I'll be right back. But uh, September 1 through 12th, so I assume it's what I would call early season, mature bull tactics.
Are you there? Yeah. I'll let you run with yep. it. I'm, I'm going to put you on mute for just a second, though. But go ahead and run with the, with the question. All right. You want me to answer it? Yep. All right. Well, September 1st to 12th, uh, I mean, we talked already. Uh, a couple of these questions were mature bowl tactics. September 1st through 12th, yeah. It, um, I guess, well, I already talked about my philosophy, so I don't need to go uh, calling philosophy. And, and so I'm not going to, I don't need to dive back into that one. Um, did, did they say any, see, based on that question, I don't know. I really don't, I mean, to be honest, I don't know enough about where he's hunting, what the habitat looks like, what the elk population looks like, what the hunter pressure looks I don't know even where it is. I don't know the specifics of the herd uh, or the unit or the hunter pressure. Um, I, usually, I can't even say that, though. That's the problem. I can't, depending on not knowing where, where they're talking about, you know, September 1st through the 12th, some of my best footage and some of my best encounters with literally bulls just raging, frenzy cows, first couple cows coming into estrus, literally is in that time period. Or, I mean, heck, yeah, I mean, I've got video footage of, of cows getting bred on September 2nd, September 9th. Um, so it could be off the hook, but I really kind of do like that beginning part of the of the month just because Sometimes you can find bulls that are not locked down with their cows as of yet, that are still cruising, still interested, and still looking. Um, and again, like I said before, given the fact that I'm not playing testosterone, playing to testosterone to start, um, I, I'm going to use my standard calling strategies and tactics, and, and I'm going to slip in there. I'm going to go with that base level vocalization, communication, behavior. I'm going to play to them, and I'm going to either try to call the bull out away from his cows uh, in a relaxed state, or I'm going to just try to call the cows to me and get the bull to follow. Now, it doesn't mean that's not going to get aggressive. I mean, heck, you can even be aggressive with cow calling strategy. So, Jay, we had a series there for a while, uh, Real Elk Sounds. We ought to try to kick that back off again. That series that we did on Real Elk Sounds was awesome because we talked about what I, you know, what I call that selfish mew, or other people talk about the estrus mew or estrus wine, estrus spring, whatever. We've we've covered that territory on what I believe it means, but I used that vocalization during this time, you know, in in time frames like this, and literally just called the cows out of the group or called the cows my way and had that bull come trotting right out with them, and, I mean, just 15 yards broadside, here he is. So you can get aggressive even with cow calling strategies. You don't have to be aggressive with bull calling strategies, but it's a great time period. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to I'm gonna stick with what I know as far as my bedrock vocalizations, communication, and behavior, and, and get after them. Your thoughts? Chris, don't you at some point, I mean, you can't force things, and – I know you've talked about it before, but like you, you, you can't just make things happen. You can have these targeted strategies that you talk about, but there are times too in early season. Sometimes this plays out. You have to be more patient early season. Oh. Yeah, I, dude, no, you, you nailed it, man. I mean, I, I flat out, I flat out talk about it in the fact that you're, you're never going to make an elk do anything. 
except maybe run away. You, I mean, you can make them run away from you. Oh, I can you. do Absolutely. that. I can do that with the best yeah, exactly. of them. <laughs> oh, <that laughs> I've, I've refined that art. <laughs> so, I mean, we can do that. But after that, all you, all you can do is put in their mind what what they ought to do. And, and by what I mean by that is, Goodness gracious, there's the entire section on the ELK module talking about behavior and, and how ELK see each other and communicate and all that. But in the absence of visual communication, all they can do is listen to one another and all they can do is evaluate what they hear and it puts a picture in their mind of what they should expect or what they should do. And all you can do is, is put in their mind a, 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 an image or a scenario that it's in their best interest if you're doing things right, to put it in their best interest to do something. But you, but, you, but you can't force them to do it. And so all you're doing is you put your best foot forward and say, okay, here's, here's where we're going to go. Again, that's where I'm, I'm I, sorry, I sound like a broken record. And, and quite honestly, this is one of the, the, the criticisms I get for our Elk Hunter strategy app that people can download on their phone. People are like, oh, there's, there's a lot of information in there, but man, it seems like some of your calling you know, stuff is redundant. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's literally hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of different calling scenarios you might find yourself in. But elk only make a handful of vocalizations. As, as sexy as we want to try to make it, there's only a certain amount of vocalizations that they make, and there's only certain many different ways that you can put them together. I make the case on, on how I put them together. But it, I don't know. I... If, if you go to the fundamental core of their communication and behavior and, and how they think, you have so many more opportunities. And so people get hung up on, um, I got a question that came in and, you know, somebody was freaking out about, I need to answer this to this guy. Well, how can I, can, I can talk about it now. You know, he was asking, see, same thing. You know, the, here, here are the date. Here's where people are going to be. Here's what's going on. Here's the week I can go. And it's going to be a full moon. And, and he was kind of throwing his hands up in the air asking me, what would I do? Because he got all this human pressure, he got this full moon, and everything's just screwed. Like, if you're playing to testosterone, I can see your perspective on that. But if you're not playing to testosterone, I don't care if you're talking about August 15th, September 15th, December 15th. You can go out there and you can communicate and perform. So, you know, I with this person, I, I would just tell them, evaluate when, when you get out there for your hunt. Just evaluate human pressure. Evaluate the moisture on the landscape. Is there a lot of water everywhere? Is there good grass everywhere? Where are the elk? Are, are they concentrated? Are they scattered? What does it seem like? Are the, are the, are the bulls already locked down with cows or are they still seeking cows? I mean, Evaluate what your landscape is and then insert yourself strategically and efficiently. Again, meet low key starting and then build up from there. But just go in and evaluate before you just jump both feet into a, a strategy. Got a question here. Where did the nickname Quaker Boy come from? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd like this one. Uh, oh, Monty. 
<laughs> the, the, the nickname came from my performance on the landscape making someone look bad, and, and, and that was about it. They were like, oh, hell. <laughs> Started calling you Quaker Boy after you called all the bulls in. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. When, 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 when the hunter has multiple 350 bulls that he passes in one morning, I'll take it. I don't care. I, I, I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay. Maybe I should grow my hair and, and have. Maybe I should. That, maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I should get the black grow hat, my hair off. Get the Quaker boy. Quaker. Um, <laughs> we need the wildlife biologist in you on this next question. Is Colorado's plan to try to eliminate older bucks with CWD with the later seasons a good plan? Okay. Do me a favor. Read that again, so because I, so I we're talking about I, Colorado I, mule deer. Is Colorado's mule deer plan to try and eliminate older bucks with CWD with later seasons a good plan? So they they bumped. If you didn't okay. know, they bumped the mule deer hunts way back. Like they run way late for two or three years in a row. Like after thanks, you know, during and after Thanksgiving is the four season hunt. Like way way late into the rut. Colorado Division of Wildlife is saying that the chronic wasting disease that their plan was to is to kill a lot of the mature bucks to eliminate chronic wasting disease. This this person is asking you if by moving the mule deer hunts back, so all of the rifle hunts have been moved back. In essence, the second season is even running into I want to say like the 6th or 7th of November. The third season is you know, like the 15th of November and the fourth season is Thanksgiving. Is that a good idea? And will, I, I'm kind of expanding on the question, will that eliminate or help eliminate CWD? And and we only have five or 10 minutes to answer the question because we could literally probably spend <laughs> 24 hours. Yeah, so... Yeah, and I was just going to say that's that's a monster. Um, I I understand. Okay, so their philosophy regarding this is coming from an idea. Understand their belief that CWD is density dependent on the landscape, meaning the more animals that you have in contact with one another, the more transmission you're going to have of CWD across the landscape. Um, and the reason the, one of the rationales has been for targeting bucks is because bucks are constantly going out there, sticking their nose in the rear ends of does and they're constantly marking things and, and they're, they're, they have much more contact with saliva and mucal mucus excretions and they have the potential to spread more saliva and mucal uh, secre mucus secretions and prions based on their behavior. Now, I'm not sold on CWD being wholly density dependent and, and simply dependent upon uh, the number and interactions of animals on the landscape. However, it is true that it does. It, it, it's, it's related to that. So the idea is if you, I, I can go down this, thread of if you re if you remove oh shoot i don't even know about this i don't know I, let's just put it this way i'm i'm i am skeptical that it will work 
I understand why they're doing it. They're doing it because mature bucks are going to have more contact and they're going to have more interaction with more individuals. However, mature bucks usually have a defined home range and you could argue that younger bucks are likely to disperse and blah, blah, blah. So if you remove a young, uh, a mature buck off the landscape, muleys are harem type gear, reproductive strategy. A mule, a mature buck is going to control an area and he's going to largely control the other bucks in and around his does. White tails are a little different. I don't know. Again, is this one of those situations where unintended consequences, if we pull a mature buck out of a harem, out of a territory, are we going to open that territory up to younger individuals who might actually have a proclivity to move larger distances on the landscape? And are we going to cause a problem? I, I don't know. I understand where the division, I under, I can understand the thinking of the biologists if they were making the decision for this. I'm not sold that it's a, I'm not sold that it's a solid strategy. I'm skeptical. Let's just believe it there. Okay. Um, we've got some more questions, but I just went on Instagram to see if there were any fresh questions that, uh, that I hadn't seen. Um, OTC tags versus draw tags. What is Chris's opinion on the future of bow hunting out west, good or bad? Uh, I think you're going to see, well, no, I mean, here's, here's the bottom line. The agencies are dependent on, on $100, unless they can figure out a way to uh, circumvent that with tax dollars, which I think there was a previous question that, or maybe it came into me. Somebody was asking about Eagle river elk studies, but yeah, um, it's, it's coming in it, a minute. It, okay. So, well, I guess then we can, you can use this one as a crossover, a segue to, you know, if the, if the state agencies figure out how to uh, get tax dollars, then, um, and, and fund themselves without having to sell licenses, then I have a, you know, if, if they figure that out, then I think you're going to see a lot more uh, units go to limited draw because they're not going to need the, the volume of people on the landscape hunting. If they can't figure that out, they're going to have to sell a certain number of licenses. You can't sell that certain number of licenses in a limited draw unit. Still, it's counterintuitive or counterproductive. So you're still going to have over-the-counter units. The problem is that I think you're going to see higher levels of pressure on over-the-counter units. I think you're going to see it continued degradation of satisfaction by hunters hunting on over-the-counter units to where more people are going to want to put in for and hunt limited entry units, which is going to drastically drive up the preference points needed in those units. We've been seeing this for more than a decade now. It's accelerating already. We're also seeing more and more people spending the money to go hunt on private land just because they, they're just tired of dealing with the combat hunting of over-the-counter units and dealing with other hunters, and so they want a higher hunt quality experience. I think we're still going to see agencies maintain over-the-counter units. I just think the hunt quality and the hunt experience on those units is just going to continue to degrade the more people pack in. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's one of those things where, you know, agencies that are pushing all this R3 you know, recruitment, retention, and reactivation, trying to get more hunters on the landscape, 
but you're just putting more hunters in the same units that are already overcrowded where satisfaction of hunt quality is already, you know, low. It, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's not going to, unless there's a, a whole scale change in philosophy on habitat management and game management, I don't think we're going to see a change. I think it's going to continue the trend that we're seeing already. Uh, same, same guy asking is the future of Western bow hunting going in the right direction, banning cameras, no GPSs and arrows, etc. I, I don't know, but I don't know, but I can, I can play devil's advocate and say, what does it look like if it doesn't, you know what I mean? I mean, at, at, at what point, at, where does, where does it go? And trust me, I, I'm with you, Jay. I, I I did like your your statement and your position. I, I don't like having just blanket bans or or regulations. Just to you know, just all right. No one could do anything. You know, I I just don't like those. I just don't like that. Um, from a from an agency manager, I can understand. You know, management standpoint, I understand the philosophy behind it. But um, at some point again people need to realize that they're managing the wildlife for the people but quite honestly 99.9 percent of the time the, their number one management issue is people and so how do you how do how do we how do we expect things to improve if we ourselves individually are not improving and policing ourselves i guess i guess is, I, I don't know. It's no. I, I I think it's. I think the trends are going to continue, and I think the agencies are going to just. They're by default going to have to draw lines in the sand somewhere, and somebody at some point is not going to like where that line has been drawn. You know, I mean, Colorado did it with muzzleloaders. You know, okay, you can use it. You know, they they muzzleloaders in Colorado used to be primitive and then they came up with inline and then they came up with scopes and everything else. And then all of a sudden the agency was like, Oh crap, that doesn't seem like that goes with the intent. So they banned it, you know, they had, you know, and people lost their minds. And so the compromise was, okay, you can use an inline, which is a modern muzzleloader, but you're not allowed to use a scope. You have to use open sight. It, it was a compromise the pe- that pissed some people off, but the point behind that season is more of a quote unquote primitive, hunt experience not a i mean have you can get modern muzzleloaders now that are a thousand yard gun or a 300 yard 400 500 yard gun so i don't know i i mean i i really don't know i'm i mean this is going to be difficult for land managers and this is why people need to be involved with their state agency and their wildlife commission and the meetings and everything you, you better be there to show up you don't have to show up and, and shove your ideology down someone else's throat, but you better darn well show up and defend yourself, defend your idea, defend your opinions. So it's going to be interesting to see where things go. I don't know. Next question here. Calling strategies for bulls with cows that just keep pushing away or heading to bed. Yeah, I'm going to, I mean, that, again, I'm going to go, back to my fundamentals. I mean, we've talked about in the behavior section of why it's not necessarily in the best interest. If, if you're, if a cow, if you're a cow in a harem, it does it, it may, it's quite not, quite honestly, not in your best interest to have more cows join your group. And it's probably not in your best interest 
to have your bull get in a fight with another bull. And, and no, there's, there's so many biological behavioral factors that, that lend themselves to where the cows don't necessarily want to enter integrate with another group and quite honestly sometimes they just don't care the cows are just going to like we don't care we're going to move off we're going to go to bed where we want to go bed and if you're over there and you want to join us come join us we give two rips we're just going to do our own thing well the bull's just going to follow him he's going to bugle at everything you give him because he wants you to come and join him in his bedding area with his cows so i mean it, it, it makes sense of what they're doing again that's where i go back to okay fine follow them there to their bedding area let them settle down if the wind is is in my favor, I'm going to set up and I'm going to use a fundamental base core vocalization strategy that just speaks to their fundamental core. Give me a response. Come to me. I'm going to set up on the outskirts of them. I'm going to try to call one of those animals out, whether it's the bull and he wants to come. Great. Shoot him. If it's not, if I can call a cow out or a calf out and get them to come my way, he's going to follow. I've got video I don't know how many videos on the strategies and action. Wait a minute. So you actually tell people you actually tell people about this strategy exactly and how to do it on your website. I can't like imagine numerous, you do that. Uh, it's it, it, it's shocking. It's it's it's, it's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and, and 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 the real the real kickers. I just don't do it once. I do it like repeatedly. <laughs> right. I I do encourage anybody. Chris has an amazing elk module and several different animal modules, turkey and, and whitetail and, and elk, but the elk gets a lot yeah, of attention it's and it's the flagship. And I would encourage you guys to go check it out. Um, the follow-up question that he had is calls to use the middle part of the day when bulls are bedded to get uh, more of a response. I think, I think you can find exactly what you're looking for there on the elk module. Another question is, um, says, I believe Chris consulted on the Vail ski area area. Um, yeah. Chris's perspective on the dwindling elk populations in the Eagle and valleys. Okay. Clarification. I did not consult on it. I was a technician during that study when I was doing my undergraduate, um, I was a technician. So I worked on that study through, uh, phase one and phase two of that Upper Eagle River elk study. Uh, in short, my opinion is I think it's predators. The bear population is through the roof. The lion population is through the roof. Um, we can talk about habitat quality and, and you know cycles and everything else. My my gut tells me uh, when they get done with the study, uh, it's going to end up being predation that's that's whacking the piss out of the calves. Um, now. Whether or not that comes out uh, as the conclusion, it seems, in my opinion, I'm, I clearly articulate my bias in this. Wait and a I minute. Make Are no you saying to... that they might not say that that's the real reason? Huh. Huh. Well, given the fact that, the, in, in my opinion, I've, I've said this before, my opinion, the, the impetus behind the new study that they're looking at in this, in this area is they're looking at recreation as the cause. Human, human-induced our human recreation is inducing a, a population decline. I think it's I think it's predators, but if they can co- if they can link human recreation to elk decline, in my opinion, they can make the case at the legislature. See, non-consumptive users have always made the the claim, and and they successfully argued 
that if because they're non-consumptive users, they're just bird watchers, they're mountain bikers, they're hikers, they're cross-country skiers, they're not doing anything to, to, to impact the wildlife. They're not killing wildlife, so we don't need to pay for wildlife management. That's why teaming with wildlife as a, as a, pro, as a program, um, similar to Pittman-Robertson, Bingle-Johnson, Sportsman's, you know, th- those, those funds, you know, it's, it's never gone anywhere because non-consumptive users don't harm wildlife. Well, if you could ever come up with a study or if you could ever show that non-consumptive use, recreation on the landscape, is causing a direct impact to an, uh, an animal population, well, now you have the mechanism by which to go to the state legislature or to wherever and say, okay, well, you are causing the problem, so you need to buck up and pay. The Colorado Division of Wildlife, or Department of or, what is it, Parks and Wildlife now, they, they tried that with a habitat stamp. They, they tried marketing that to non-consumptive users. You know, sportsmen for decades, you know, for all the time, we were like, they're not going to buy it. And the agency was like, oh, yeah, they will. And we are like, no, they won't. And then they made the habitat stamp, and guess what? Nobody from the non-consumptive user group essentially bought it. And so that's why they started making, going to a state wildlife area. You had to, you know, you had to, non-consumptive users had to pay, you know, trying to figure out a way to get money out of non-consumptive users. Well, Vail Associates and all those resorts, whether you're talking Vail, Beaver Creek, um, you could even talk about Breckenridge, Keystone, Copper Mountain, Aspen, Steamboat, all those, all those big uh, recreation entities, most of them are operating on national forest land through a permit. And those, they're, they're not really pitching into other than great outdoors Colorado fund, you know, helping put money into that. I believe they're not really pitching in any, anything for the CPW or the wildlife agency. So if they can figure out a way to tie that, my, this is my opinion, purely my opinion based on my experience in sportsman politics and what I saw afterward, after the Eagle river elk study and, and for decades after my opinion is the population is in decline in that area, largely due to predators. I have a feeling it's going to get tied to human pressure. And then who knows Who knows what happens after that? That's the thing that just drives me nuts. Okay, so what do we do about it? And, unless you're, unless That's going to drive the preservationist act. theory. That's going to drive the don't let that, anybody. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, so, okay, so we, so we end up, so we end up making uh, Vail Associates pay a tax or, or everybody that goes up to mountain bike uh, for a weekend up at, at Beaver Creek has to buy a habitat stamp. Who cares? What is that going to do for our elk? What, what do we do? Are we doing anything for the habitat? Is, is there anything about the habitat? Is there anything about predators? What, what, what are we going to do? Now, granted, some people, and this is, I think, where you're, maybe this is where you're going with that statement, Jay, the preservation is saying, okay, well, we have to shut down areas of the forest okay i absolutely could see that i absolutely could see that because certain individuals within the agency at the time of the conclusion of the upper eagle river elk study were not happy that the forest service went ahead and authorized the permit to develop for vale associates vale associates to develop the back bowls what they call the back bowls of vale over uh, up and over the mountain from Vail. <clears throat> That's what the whole study was for. Is some people thought that that area was way too critical 
for ha- wild less habitat to allow more recreational development. And other people said no. And the Forest Service sided with those that said no. And they said, well, we don't think it's a, a problem. And so we're going to move forward. We're going to allow that expansion into the back bowls of ale. I think if, if this comes out and you can attach that study to human-induced uh, issues, I think you will. I think you will see more people advocating for public land closures. And, and this was one of my arguments about the wolf thing and why I, what frustrated me uh, about people opposing the wolf reintroduction in Colorado. No one was making the arguments like, listen, people, if you want to, why aren't you telling the general public that if you're going to reintroduce a wolf and you want to put a wolf on the landscape, obviously there's, in my opinion, it's quite likely you could have significant area closures for all recreation around the critical core areas of these wolf packs that are being reintroduced. Does the general public realize that they might lose recreational opportunity in some of these areas? Or do they care? I don't know. But that's absolutely a possibility. And so I absolutely can see this. If, if it gets tied to, if the Eagle River herd issue gets tied to human involvement, then I think that could be a foregone conclusion as far as what ends up uh, a lot of the activist groups, especially the predator conservation groups, the anti-hunting groups will latch onto that thing in a quickness and say, see, this is why we can't have people in here. And then what? Next question. How early should one be in the field locating elk before sunup during the rut? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think you've, you've done. I mean, you've done this as much as I have. So I think typically my alarms in September for the last twenty-three years has gone off. Twenty-four years has gone off at three a.m. and I'm usually out there listening. I'm where I want to be, and I'm out there just standing. I'm not. I'm not calling. I'm not making a bunch of noise. I'm listening. Um, I would say, depending on where you're at, a good 30 minutes for sure, um, if not possibly an hour. And that, and that's, you know, getting out there in the pitch black and it's starting to get gray and you're kind of listening, but you can't see it all. That's a good time to be out there. I don't know that there's any right or wrong answer, but I would say a good hour would be probably what I'd go, go with. Oh, Poppy Scott is he's disagreeing. She's Pop, disagreeing. Poppy's <laughs> throwing the gavel into the conversation, saying she does not agree. She's like, I object. Yes. I object. Um, uh, no, I'm, I, I'm with you. I, I always try to say I'm a minimum. If I can do it, I am a minimum one hour, one hour before the first sliver of daylight. That's not... You know, one hour before shooting light. That's a drop-dead minimum, one hour before legal shooting. Not out of my bed and and hiking. I'm standing where I want to start to get to, you know, yeah. So if that means it's a 30-minute hike from or drive or whatever from where I'm camping to where I want to listen, then i got to backtrack that off. But, yeah, most of the time I want to be there an hour before minimum legal shooting lights so that way I can hear it because a lot of times they're, they're, as soon as there's that little tiny hint of sliver of gray, like you said, in the horizon, there's been many times when that's when they stop talking. 
Okay, I've got a question here. Uh, best calling strategy for a 3A, 3C Arizona archery cow elk tag dates September 10th through September 24th. So this person has drawn an Arizona 3A, 3C, which is a great unit, but they've drawn a cow tag. They want to know best calling strategies. Same. It's just, just like a just like everything else, I'm going to be focused on a targeted calling strategy, lost muse and assembly muse, and I'm going to, you know, maybe I maybe I focus on the the lost muse or lost calf sounds just because I'm, you know, if I can appeal to that maternal instinct. But you know, same. I'm, I'm again, I, I'm I'm going to default to that base level communication, and at that point, you know, that's perfect for cow hunters because that's literally what they're engaged with right now, especially the calves that are that are with that group. I mean, they're they're engaged daily talking to one another. Why not use the exact vocalizations they're using? Lost news, assembly news, lines, etc. Okay, uh, last question. Uh, when is Chris going to put another elk hunt video on YouTube? I love his content. A lot of great information. Well, great question. I've got one that I, you know, I've got to still put it together. You know, Jay, when you get done with a hunt and you've got a couple hundred hours of content, trying to pick it apart and put it together, editing it. Um, the last, so here's the thing is, you know, the last hunt that I've been on that was successful was one of my, um, clients, uh, a few years back. So I've got that one that's like half built. I need to finish it. These past couple of years, you know, the footage has just been kind of crappy. Um, you know, most people know that I self film everything. There's no one going with me. Um, for those who haven't seen any of the videos, I'm a solo, generally a solo, so I'm calling, I'm doing the videoing, whether that's me hunting or that's my, my hunter. And so these past couple of years with the clients, I mean, it's just the hunting has just been brutal. And so the success has not been there. And then quite honestly, I haven't even had a chance really to hunt for myself in many cases. And then in other places I've been hunting, I, because it's public land, I haven't had a permit um, to allow me to do, you know, filming blah 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 so i don't have a lot of recent elk I, I heard they they've lifted that is that true that they've kind of uh, up on the that? rumor has it yeah see that's what i'm trying to get clarification on it it sounded like they lifted it and then other people were saying no no it's just a blanket hundred dollar permit it's like okay well which one is it you know i think at this point it's just going to end up being as it usually does it's going to be up to the individual forests and i think it's going to be on interpretation and i think it's going to end up being you know Everybody just goes out there and films, and then if someone does, you know, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that, I think it's just going to go to court. So, no, I, I agree with you. I, I heard that that happened, but that was not whilst I was out hunting. While I was out hunting and getting footage, at the time, this particular chunk of public land required a, a film permit, so I just went and hunted, you know, for, my, you know, for myself and family, so... Uh, it's been a while. That's part of the reason to circle back to the beginning. That's part of the reason, like we talked about before this kicked off. That's that's why. I mean, I, it's been so long that I've gone out specifically to get good footage in the fall. Whether it's me hunting myself or someone else, I just I just feel out of place. I just I want to get back into it. And I want to just go out there and just have some fun. So that's why I'm taking this season for myself. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on here and answering questions and sharing here with us. And it's always fantastic to have you on the podcast. I know you're 
one of my most popular guests and I'll probably have you on between now and elk season again and uh, just appreciate all the value that you bring and I want to give you a chance again to let the listeners know how they can find out more about you follow along your stuff. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I know I enjoy coming out and talking with you because we have, we usually have some lively discussions. So. <laughs> but uh, no, I uh, just, yeah, anywhere you want to find me, I try to keep it simple, just Roe Hunting Resources, R-O-E Hunting Resources. I don't do as much stuff on Facebook these days, just the algorithm, just, it, I, it just Facebook doesn't seem to work for me. Instagram, yeah, my that's doing well. So I spend more of my time on Instagram, uh, YouTube. Yeah. I've got a bunch of stuff on there as well. I haven't put up a, a lot of new stuff on there. I'm going to, I'm debating on that. Well, that could be a different discussion later on, given the condition, you know, what's going on with Google and Facebook and Twitter and it's at big tech and, and some of the censorship stuff that we've seen. So, um, but the, the website, by all, if you, if you want to learn about this stuff from a, and, and I say scientific standpoint, from a, from a behavioral standpoint, not, you know, some sexy, who, uh, this is, I'm a wildlife biologist and, and I love animal, animal behavior. And so everything that I do comes from that perspective. And, you know, given the relative focus of these questions with elk, you know, the elk module, yeah, we are well over 50 hours of video instruction and, and it's heavy on, um, actually putting elk in front of you to let you hear what the elk are doing, what the elk, you can see what the elk are doing. And then we talk about it and, and from an elk biology and behavior standpoint, what's going on, why are they doing it and how do we use it? Like you said, we talked about Jay, you, you had, you contributed to some of that as well with the, the real elk sounds and some of that stuff is just phenomenal. So if somebody wants a, a resource, nothing else to be able to practice calling and mimicking elk, she's okay. There's hours upon hours of just elk talking, interacting with one another. So you can see, watch, hear, listen, learn. Um, and, yeah, we, we still have yet, we, we, I have not, because um, I know this question is going to come up. We got rid of the promo codes, uh, and we purposely made the conscious uh, decision to do away with promo codes because cost of hosting hours of video has gone up. And so, and I know all the other resources out there are over a hundred bucks to, you know, sign up. We decided we would do away the promo codes, but we would make, we would just keep our prices the same. So you can get a subscription for the elk module for three months for like 25 bucks. Still, you can get a full year access to it for $50. Still. We, we haven't changed that price. I don't, I'm, we're, we're really trying not to change the price, we're trying to make sure that, you know, it's still graspable by everybody that wants to learn this stuff. So yeah, it's just an online library where you just go in, log in, watch it on your phone, watch it on your iPad, watch it on your computer. Dive in, man. I mean, you've seen it. It's awesome. Chris, thanks, buddy. Look forward to chatting with you. All right, brother. Stay safe, and uh, I better start seeing some more pictures of big trout. Oh, you will. Stay tuned. (laughs) All right, brother. All right, bye. Bye.